BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Cats talking. What are you singing? Oh, jive talking, but putting cats, but why that doesn't even work or fit? Well, it's one syllable. Or what? It doesn't work or fit. Cats talking fits. Of course it does. It's the same as jive talking. Cats is one syllable. I know it's one syllable, but, you know, mugs talking, that wouldn't work. No, no, but you or said hair talking. That wouldn't work. Hang on, what's the, what's the what's the syllabic difference between jive talking and cats talking? Oh, jive talking makes sense because jive talking is a thing, but cats. Yeah, cats talking makes a th- makes sense because he was coming off the back of you talking about cats talking. So he said Simon Poole said cats talking, and I went. I didn't hear him say that. He was just talking to you. He didn't. Right. Okay. So the voice in my head wasn't the voice in your head. No, he can do that. He can just talk to you. Oh, now he said cats talking. Well, it's too late now. But I see cats talking. That's perfect. That's funny. And you know that you know the story, don't you, about the about where that came from? Yeah, it was tires over a bridge. Tires over which bridge? Brooklyn Bridge. Was it? No, I think it was actually the San Francisco Bridge, wasn't it? Golden Gate Bridge. Or was it the Clifton Suspension Bridge? <laughs> Clifton Suspension Bridge, that's right. That's they were is. in Bristol. Yes. And uh, one of the Bee Gees' uh, smaller tours... Oh, they're from the Isle of Man, aren't they? So. No, they live in the Isle of Man, but they're not from the Isle of Man. Oh. Or they lived in the Isle of Man. Were they born in Australia? Yes, I think that's right, and I'm now going to Google it. They, they certainly lived in the Isle of Man for a long time, but I don't think they're actually from it. Hang on. Man looks up. Man looks up for something on the internet. Here we go. Oh, yeah, okay. I but I believe that in your second answer you were correct that the Bee Gees are from Australia. So hang on, here we go. Bee Gees, blah 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 blah. Famous blah blah blah. Singy singy singy. No, I'm, I'm, you're right. Born on the Isle of Man to, in, to English parents. Okay, so that makes them Manx. Yeah, they are Manx. Well, yeah, the English parents. So, but when, so where's the Australia bit coming they, from? Oh, they certainly lived in Australia for a long time. I reckon they moved. Born on the Isle of Man to English parents, the Gibb brothers lived in Chalton, Manchester until the late 50s. They formed the skiffle rock group, the Rattlesnakes. They then moved to Queensland, Australia. Okay. That's it. So we... But you can hear when they... When they, I mean, there's only one of them left now, but they talk like they're from Manchester. They, they, yeah, they so they've got Mancunian Manchester. accents, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> what's ail with your bad self? Well, I'm I'm doing very well. How are you? You know, fast- what, sorry, because of all the pre-recording. What day is this today? This is Friday before Christmas, isn't it? This is the uh, this last- is like an ordinary thing. Right? We're not pre-recording part. pretending because we've just done pretending that it's Christmas this Day. Our, this is our totally top- ordinary thing, right? So it's Friday. It is it's Friday. five to five. We're in our studio. We've got an ordinary show, as far as we're aware. Yeah. You know, but there might be racing from Parliament. You never know if something's going to. I got the creaky chair. And I just want to say, only because I've just found this out, that yeah. uh, wassail is from is Old Norse for vas hail, which means good health. That's what it oh, is. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. I, never, I didn't so know that. I'm, so, and then, now it's associated with very hot cider. So, but apart and, and how did that happen, that the association with hot cider? Because you would drink hot cider whilst wassailing. And, and pour it in an orchard as a kind of fertility thing. Oh, right. Apparently. If you feel so moved. So it's a bit wicker man. Get some strongbow, pour it over a tree stump. <laughs> what are you doing there? Until the local constabulary comes along. You're nicked. So, all right, you're off, sir. I was just sailing behind this tree. Yeah, that's certainly what it looked like <laughs> to us. <laughs> Do you know, are you familiar with that story? And I'm, I have no idea whether it's true. The story always used to be that apparently a gentleman in the street was able to ask a policeman to hold up his cloak in order that the gentleman could relieve himself really? in, well I, I i'm sure it's one of those it's one of those things like if you're 
doing the finals exam in Cambridge, you, you, you're entitled to order a glass of port or the law that says that if you go into any restaurant in the you, they have to give you a glass of water and a newspaper right so if, and I, I have no idea where any of these things if are I've true, got a cape on I could go up to a, a cape on a cape on yes I could go up to a, a, a police officer and say hold this excuse me I need to have a wee in the street would, oh. would you raise my cape yeah would you raise my cape <laughs> you'll be in the nick I know well exactly that's the point but that's it's one of those things where, you know, there was you must have been part there was, there's loads and loads maybe of, that's the new forest maybe you still do the, that kind of in that neck of the woods <laughs> yeah right <laughs> is that not true no but you know there are loads and loads of things that you believe to be true because when you're in the school playground somebody told you and one of them was if you go into any food establishment they have to give you a glass of water and the newspaper and that was something to do with because everyone has the right to have a drink and to find out what the local laws are. Oh, right. But, but it's probably not true. It's probably a modern myth. The only thing I was told at school... Yes. ..which then turned The out only to thing be, you were told. ..which then turned out to be not true. Mm-hmm. And I hesitate before saying, it, yeah. saying this because, you know, it's Christmas. Yeah. The only thing I was told at school, which I then realised was not true, is that Thunderbirds Island really existed. <laughs> And there were a small group of us who went around... Wondering where it was. No, we just went around roughing up people who disagreed. No, we didn't really. <laughs> you were tough. Said, no, 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 not at all. No, exactly. I was a I'll weedy t- wet. I was a snowflake. I'll I was t- the original snowflake. I'll tell you the other one, right? I was told at school, and you might have to slightly clean this up, but I don't think so because it wasn't... It was, I was told... Stand by. I was told at school that although they had removed that you there was no we don't no longer did hanging in the country in, in yes. the UK fine because capital punishment is a bad thing but, but but due to some weirdness of the law the only thing you could be hung for still hanged yeah i beg your pardon the only thing you could be hanged for still was arson in her majesty's docks okay, okay. yes so apparently you can you could this is what i was told at school be hanged for arson in her majesty's docks I misheard it, and I thought they said, I promise you this is true, I thought they said the only thing you can be hanged for is arsoning Her Majesty's dogs. So I thought there was a special thing, which meant if you set fire to one of the Queen's corgis, you could be hanged for that. And all I could think was, how weird to live in a country in which there is a specific law against setting fire to the Queen's dogs. Yeah, I'm relieved to hear that that was your interpretation of it. As it also, impersonating a Chelsea pensioner was a hangover. Oh, yes, that's right. That's And again, I don't know whether that's true or whether that's a modern myth, but I've heard that same thing. It's right. Impersonating a Chelsea pensioner was a hangable offence. Hungable offence. Hangable. Hangable offence. Hangable. <laughs> Helen Wills, dear Simon and Mark, I was recently listening to your podcast at the 29th Nov when you read out an email from Richard Garnett. I realised he was the same Richard Garnett whom my father had previously been associated with on a board of trustees and I shared the details with Dad and recommended he give, give you a listen. And lo, a short while later, I received messages back from Dad who had indeed taken my advice, listened and thoroughly enjoyed your witterings. He also appreciated Richard's sign-off. Happy Christmas, tinkety tonk. And I'm pleased to advise that you now have a new subscriber to your podcast, my father, who is Andy Cowgill, and you're welcome. So I now come to the main point for my correspondence, and I hope to enlist you as accomplices or Christmas elves, whichever you prefer. Accomplices, I think, is fine. I wonder if you can help to reveal to Dad what his gift is through the mechanism of your podcast. Dad is always generous, encouraging and supportive, and this time... 
We wanted to treat him. He may be wondering why we haven't been talking already about going to see the latest chapter of the Star Wars saga as soon as it's released, as has become our norm over the last few years. Well, it is because we've already bought tickets for a few days after Christmas, but instead of a trip to our usual world of cine, we will be luxuriating in the Regal Cinema in Evesham for a cinematic experience in Star Unlike any other. Well, now you see, so this comes from Helen and Nick, and obviously that's a lovely thing, but I did think that that was going to be, we're going to be going to New York. Yes, exactly. We're going to go to Paris. We're going to see Star Wars in all its glory abroad. (laughs) And actually, they're going to Evesham. Evesham. Which, I mean, (laughs) maybe Dad's going to go, okay, (laughs) thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, Lucy Walker in Suffolk. Chaps. A word. Yes. Last week, Mark recommended Love Actually. Yes. As a potential double bill with ordinary love. Yes. Because both are, quote, about relationships. Oh, okay. hang on, hang on, hang on. It doesn't use, he's not using that tone of voice in the email. You're imposing that upon it. Point of order. Love Actually, which I have never, ever liked. Oh, I thought you were going to say never, ever seen. Never, ever liked. But straining every empathetic muscle in my body can just about understand why people do, is not about relationships. Yes, it is. There are perhaps two in there, the Emma Thompson bit, the Laura Linney bit, but mostly they are wish-fulfilment fantasies from from the perspective of... Don't insult our listener. I'm sorry, he's about to insult Love Actually. Lucy Walker. She, in that case, she is about to insult Love Actually. But mostly, they are wish-fulfillment fantasies of a hormonal 17-year-old. Wouldn't it be great to, one, be a camera angles guy in an adult movie, two, travel, meet blonde girls and be the most popular guy ever. three, have a secret crush on my best friend's brand new wife, and, through a creepy intervention, come to believe she'd really rather be with me, in the words of the turtles, four, be prime minister and kick the president's butt, five, be a writer and have my genius words rescued by a gorgeous, entirely silent Portuguese woman in her underwear whatever the next number is chase a girl to the airport and finally meet claudia schiffer at my son's school me yes i guess that would be great for you not for the people watching all this play out every bird song year on literally every channel case closed yours scroogely lucy walker in suffolk okay well look let me say this Firstly, Lucy, I apologise for the sneering tone which I immediately adopted you at did. the beginning of that email. I also apologise for um, for saying he, both of which are... Unforgivable. Uh, yeah, no, unforgivable and evidence of prejudice on my part. Here's the point. I have heard all the arguments about the um, the philosophical, political problems of love, actually. I, I, and I know them, and you have rehearsed them very well there. And I take your point. I just don't feel it. And I I mean, believe me, no one is more baffled than me, because usually the thing that I get accused of is, you know, reviewing movies regarding their right on politics. And that litany that you just read out is factually correct. And I cannot argue with it. And I cannot therefore explain why it is that none of that matters to me when I watch Love Actually, other than to say, a friend of mine once said about a, about a critic, I won't name the critic and I won't name the friend, but he said, that critic is a perfect example of somebody who knows everything and understands nothing. And all I can say is that I know what's wrong with Love Actually, but I don't understand any of it. 
because it just works for me. And the problem, I mean, I, you know, I know. Which means you can't argue. If it works for you, then it does. And then it, then it does. And I... Uh, I so Lucy is Lucy, factually correct. Lucy is fa- And in a court of law, Lucy, you would win, hands down. I, you know, what can I say? I'd be lying if I said I agreed with you. Robin Loughborough. Um, <clears throat> I'm a couple of weeks behind on the pod, so I only just heard the moaning about bands not playing their greatest hits. I had to chip in with a gig from earlier this year. Mark Knopfler, one of the last acts on my bucket list. I was so excited. He played nearly two and a half hours of solo stuff and Dire Straits classics, but no Sultans of Swing. When he went off, I turned to the good lady town planner Erin Dawes and said, <laughs> don't worry, he'll be back out. He hasn't done Sultans. <laughs> Lights went up. I was grumpy for the rest of the evening. He didn't do Sultans. He didn't do it. In fact, I'm still grumpy six months later. Anyway, Rob says... Did that begin because we had the thing about, you know, James not doing sit-down for ages? I think so. P.S. from Rob. Ed Tudor is the only act that's ever heckled me from the stage. (laughs) I had an A-level exam the morning after his gig, and once he'd done Swords of a Thousand Men, I thought I should head off. He saw, and he didn't take it very well. (laughs) I quite like that. Um, You know know that thing about... um, Applauding, you know, you watch a movie until the point they say the title and you applaud and, and leave. leave. Yeah, I was watching. Um, we'll talk about this. In the film. I was watching Little Women, which we'll we'll review in the show. And there's two moments in Little Women in which they say Little Women, and I was all I could do to stop myself. You have you'd have trouble in Star Wars, wouldn't you? I mean, you would. We're going to avoid spoilers, but do, does anyone in any of any of the movies say, ever say Star Wars? Say these are like it's, it's like, like Star Wars. It's like there's a war in the stars. <laughs> <laughs> on that point, I mm. went to see uh, Death of a Salesman, which yes, which, which I went to see last week uh, with Wendell Pierce. Yeah, and I had never seen it. I'd seen it in film, and I'd never seen it. I did exactly the, the same thing as you're about to say. And as the moment that Wendell Pierce so actually says, says about that's the Death of a Salesman, think, boom! Did and did you and did you feel immediately the urge to go? And leave. I did, I did. <laughs> Plus, I also thought, that's a spoiler, really. <laughs> I mean, it tells you what's going to happen in the title of the play. No, but but then it doesn't tell you what's going to happen because he's not referring to his... Or is or he? Or is he? Strange. No. The, most, the thing that did catch me off guard about The Death of a Salesman is when he says, it's like Star Wars. That, now, that really did... I didn't expect that at all. That was really weird. It was really it? weird. Uh, Fred in East Ham, following on for your conversation a couple of weeks I ago. I just say, sorry... I am feeling really bad now about sneering at Lucy because that was a rude and, and made me sound like a nasty person. And I, I'm not, you're a, not nasty, a nasty person. I just no, want to be not. clear. Are we going to leave it in? I'm not going to ask for it to be cut out. Although you know, because I, but I did think that I sounded like a like a mean spirited old git, and I'm, I apologise. Nobody, to you, Lucy. nobody thinks. Thank you. Okay, wrong. moving on. Okay. Um, yeah, Fred in East Ham. Following on your conversation from a couple of weeks ago on bands not playing the hits, which came before an extended description of where Mark stood during a Bowie concert. Oh, yeah. I saw Hawkwind play... <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say, I saw Mark standing there. I saw Hawkwind play at Blue Dot a couple of years ago. Very excited, but they refused to play Silver Machine. At a festival, you have the luxury... You can't refuse to play Silver Machine. That's At a festival, you have the luxury of moving on to see something else, but not if you're waiting for that song. Apparently, they've done other songs, but they're also very long and noodly. Who knew? And there we go. go. Do you know Hawkwind's single, Silver Machine, 1972, Urban Gorilla, then more Silver Machine, Shot Down in the Night, Silver Machine again, Night of the Hawk, Quark, Strangeness and Charm. Yeah. They played all those. They played all those. They didn't do Silver Machine. Do you know why Hawkwind were called Hawkwind? 
Um, I don't think I do. Because the whoever it was, was it Nick Turner, had a big nose and farted a lot. And so he was referred to as Hawkwind. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not making that up. Oh, or at least if I am <clears> making... <throat> here's the thing. I only know that because the good lady professor, her indoors, used to go watch Hawkwind. And she told me I that that's the... A, I never had her down as a Hawkwind fan. Oh, God, yeah, she's got all... Yeah, no, she has a history of all that stuff. Really? Yes, you know, motorhead at the roundhouse and, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole dark past there. <laughs> but yeah. she got, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, she went to see Hawkwind. Hawkwind, but she she assured me, and I'm now going to discover that actually she's been lying to me all this time, that they were called Hawkwind because whoever it was who was the, the lead person in Hawkwind, I mean, I know it's not... Lemmy, not Lemmy. No, no, the lead person. The guy who isn't Lemmy. Yeah. It was Nick Turner's Inner City Universe. Anyway, whoever it was had a big nose and broke wind and therefore Hawkwind. Nick Turner. Yes. There we go. It's all being verified. Yeah, f- thank you very much. So, there we are. The good lady checker. professor had not let me down. I had an argument once with a Radio 1 producer because I wanted to play Orgasmatron by Motorhead. And they said so, you can't play it because it's got the word Matron in it. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, ooh, uh, Matron, as Frank, <laughs> Frankie Howard used to say. Um, That's very good. Thank you. Daniel Cooper. Orgasmatron would be a different song altogether, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. They should... That's it. You, you guys could do a skiffle version of that. <laughs> Orgas- Orgas- matron. <laughs> it's up there with the melon farmers, don't you think? Um, dear Old and Fruit, this is Dan Cooper. I was looking through the listings at Sheffield's finest cinema, The Showroom, and saw their showing the Fred and Ginger classic Top Hat. Yeah, I love that. This brought back happy memories of my most favourite ever cinema trip, to see the same film at the same cinema, the Art Deco building being a fitting location for the film. When my wife and I entered the rear of the screen, we were greeted by a sea of blue rinse and bald patches, surely the most pleasing sight to be greeted with at the cinema. We must have been the youngest there by 40 years. The following 100 minutes were a treat, and not just because of the wondrous delight of seeing the mesmerising, joyous dancers on the big screen. No, the reason it was so pleasing was because of the veritable smorgasbord of breaches of the Code of Conduct. Oh, really? The end of each dance was greeted with a warm round of applause. <laughs> there was, That's great! There was frequent talking, as the hard of hearing loudly asked the person next to them what a character had just said. <laughs> there was the intervention of an electronic device, not someone's phone, but the whistle of a hearing aid... <laughs> And the pick of the breeches was when an elderly gentleman could quite clear, could quite clearly be heard snoring. Now, everybody left the film beaming, and I wondered if there are any other tales of code, code breaches, which are happy, happy code breaches, that actually serve to improve the experience of a film. And we've before we talked about Young you know, kids. sing-along movies yeah. or kids in Frozen, that, and that's all perfectly fine. But this is quite. So, but this is sort of slightly different. So yeah. you're breaking the code, definitely. But it's actually working in favour of the film. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I that that sounds complete. Like, I mean, I love the idea of applauding the musical numbers at the end. I think that's absolutely great and very respectful. No, very respectful, and also it reminds you that. Oh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think. Well, I think more and more that I am. What. I think more, more and more that I'm, I'm just way too, way too grumpy for my own good. And um, well, we're going to do something about it because we, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. It is Christmas. So I had, I was doing a thing. I did a thing. I was on stage at the Albert Hall. I recently. know you were. Thank you very much. And um, there was, a, there was a thing about an introduction to a piece of music which happened to have been written in the summertime. And I was remembering that famously uh, Merry Christmas, Everybody was recorded in New York in July or maybe late July, early August in 1973 in this uh, studio that was a skyscraper. 
And I was just, just because often I think things and then I think that I know them to be true. But then when I Google them, it turns out to be completely untrue. But I Googled this and it was true. But I found a thing that I hadn't read before of Jim Lee describing recording uh, Merry Christmas, Everybody, which, of course, as you know, began life as Won't You Buy Me a Rocking Chair. It was a song called Rocking Chair. Went, I didn't know So that. won't you buy me a rocking chair to watch yeah, yeah. the world go okay. by. So that's how it began. And his, his description of recording that song was he said it was terrible. He said it was really hot. Everyone was in a bad mood. Don Powell was not, you know, was not well. Um, you know, the dum 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 the drumming is sort of very, very sort of, uh, you know, he did it sort of under protest. Dave Hill didn't want to play guitar on it. He said he played the, the Mellotron or the Moog and the, the acoustic guitar and the bass and did everything. And then it was only when Noddy Holder came in and sang the Merry Christmas, everybody. And yet when you hear that song, all you hear is joy. All you hear is just unalloyed joy. It's or, a bit like listening to this show. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're Noddy Holder, what you hear, what you hear is your pension plan. Um, but, what you are going to hear later on is uh, we've got another uh, wassailing song. Oh, great. From our friend. We also have a, a special message for you. For me? From Tom Hanks. Really? Just saying. Are you... Are you, are you we're, we're don't, don't set that up and then not do it. Are we gonna finish the, we're going to finish the show with it. Is it actually from Tom Hanks or is it like an outtake from it's Toy like, Story or something? It's really, really, really from Tom Hanks for you coming up later. Okay, I feel, well, now I feel all thrilled. And now I feel even worse for being so rude earlier on. Let's get on with the show. Are you all wearing Blakey's? I am. I, I really am, yeah. A nice waistcoat. Not sure about the shirt. <laughs> Here we are, gathered again with entertainment was sailing. The doctors are in very good cheer with members and their emailing. Sarcastic birds, suits and socks, baby friendly showings. Mr. Nye's everywhere, his comings and his goings. There's your big bad beautiful self, Simon's often asking. Mark is clicking on the keypad, known for multitasking. Not in the gym so much these days, doing his aerobics. Fear of breathing second-hand air from all the complonophobics. Winter world is coming our way, another money spinner. Millionaires by the end of the year, everyone's a winner. A merry-go-rant with flappy hands, literally spinning. Simon's playing Jurassic Park, literally winning. Another year has come and gone, thank you to you both. Growing members of the church, exponential growth. Husbands, wives, children, friends, wedding invitations. We wish you health and very good cheer and festive celebrations. We wish you health and very good cheer and festive celebrations. Well, thank you, that was great. <laughs> That's the work of Ken O'Hara again. <laughs> that was uh, great. A very good Bill Nye. Yes, I think it was. was it? I think it was. Oh, it actually was Bill Nye. Yes. In which case, that might be no, expensive. No, I don't think it was. I think it was. Was it Ken B? Anyway, Ken O'Hara sends an email saying, Yuletide felicitations. Please find my final wassailing song ever. I hope you have some space on your Christmas show. As ever, it's all my own work, so you don't have to go on a course. When okay, well there you are. That's the answer. So he clearly it's all his own work. When 
starting out on my journey with these wassailing characters, I always knew it would take a trilogy in order to do justice to these creations. The exploration <laughs> yeah, that's very good. of their internal that's demons, personal good. struggles, and the group's fascinating and multifaceted sociodynamics. The last in the trilogy, now known as the Smoking Bishop Trilogy... <laughs> finds our hardy wassailers walking into the snowy Christmas landscape never to return. Will they see dead people? Will one of them contract a deadly virus and attack the merry band, leaving their scattered corpses to rot in the blood-stained snow? Will they be abducted and probed by aliens? Will the finale be one of roundhouse kicks, knife fights and gun foo, a.k.a. <laughs> AKA Mr Wick? Anyway, uh, I love an opening ending. I love an open ending, and this is exactly what I love what you the get. opening ending. The opening ending. There'll be no return of, or brides of, or sons of. Uh, I thank you from the heart of my bottom, hee hee bottom, for listening to these jingles and hope you enjoy the journey. Very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year uh, to the whole Birdsong team and members of the church. Happy wassailing from Ken O'Hara, who always sends us a wassailing. That is Christmas. fantastic. Thank you very much. That was a particularly good one. I do think it was him doing Bill Nye at the end, and I think it was a very good, it was such a good impression that you thought it was actually Bill Nye. Yeah, and at the beginning as well, and also that was him being the Dudley Moore slash Rowan Atkinson. Exactly. Will yeah. this wind? He um, was, I think he was he was more Rowan Atkinson there, wasn't he? Will this wind? I think also we should say on the program today, which is a super fab program, yes, as, as it always is, always is. It's also our Christmas special. It also has Tom Hanks in it at the end. Right, you're going to have to stay right to the end of the show. Right to the end of the show because uh, you have to stay. I mean, it's like it, no, you're making you do it, have to no, stay. no. When you say you have to, it makes it sound like it's a it's a, a task to be accomplished. But well, I'm sure many people want to stay to the end of, of the show. Of course, they do. But also just to say, last week's programme ended in a rather kind of downbeat, nihilistic style. Well, um, and so uh, I didn't think it was as downbeat and nihilistic as that, but apparently that's how some people yes. took it. Tom Hanks is going to give us a festive pick-me-up. Plus, we talk Star Wars with J.J. Abrams and everyone else. Thanks very much for the emails that are coming in at, you know, hundreds per hour. Yes. So, we, you know, we can just do flavours of those. Plus, as people might have noticed, Cats is out which is now like the fact that the re critics don't like it is actually the lead story in some esteemed journals I know and can I just say right at, we learn nothing at all I just say right at the beginning if if you're coming here to hear somebody rant and rave about you're not going to get that you, I, you, what you will get is a considered response but you're not going to get what kind of world do you live in where you think a considered response is what people want I, I know I'm sorry considered response <laughs> yeah but as sorry, I said I'm <laughs> Isn't that what you shout? Anyway, Fascist. Charlie Crompton to hither page and yonder peasant. In that, there's nothing much in the news today. Thought we should return to the much beloved subject of how words have been adjusted to scan. Oh, I see. That's why you did that. Okay, fine. in hymns and carols. Yeah. We were at a school carol service in the unexpectedly magnificent church in the unlikely setting of the middle of Hammersmith Roundabout yes. last night when in my belting out of this Christmas classic with 500 others, it all became a bit like, how on earth, as it is in heaven, did they ever think that these words would scan? <laughs> and we all went into mumble mode as we bludgeoned the words into the melody as best we could through the middle verse, including trying to rhyme wind, as in sinned, with find, as in, you know, yes. find, before returning to raise the roof once the right amount of syllables triumphantly almost returned in verse 3. Have a sing through verse 2 and see what you make of it. Right, so this is... Um, God rest you, rest you merry, gentlemen, OK? I could just say, importantly, of course, it's God rest you merry, comma, gentlemen. It changes the meaning of it completely. It's not God rest you merry, gentlemen. It's God rest you merry. You know, merry. I've never 
noticed former that, gentlemen. So it's not referring to merry gentlemen. No, it's about it's, anxi- they, they, it's about anxiety. That's yes, it's, it it's telling the gentleman to be merry. Yes. Otherwise, it's like God rest you, you merry gentlemen who've been out. And you're way too on, merry anyway. On the drinkies, exactly. Okay, so, so <coughs> merry refers to God gives you the merry. It's not the gentlemen who are merry. Yeah, Anyways. okay, fine. So second, second verse. verse. So we're going to have to we try, seeing? We're gonna try and fit this in. Okay. The shepherds the at those tidings rejoiced, said much in mind, and left their flocks so a-feeding in tempest, tempest storm and wind, 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 and went to Bethlehem straightway, the blessed babe to find... I know. We worked that one out. You just have to make Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And it comes from Bethlehem anyway. So. No, no, no. It's went to Bethlehem straightway. Oh, OK. I went to Bethlehem straightway. But it doesn't say straightaway. It's straightway. No, but you have to just... They went like... to Bethlehem straightway. You can't be rigid about it. Bethlehem straightway is just off the thing from Bethlehem Parkway. But the, the lunacy... airport is at Parkway. If you get off at straightway, you have to get a taxi. It's really hard. But the lunacy of... of I mean, it, mind and wind clearly look as though they might rhyme. I know. But how many carols is that the case in? You know, it's like, that doesn't rhyme. That's not. Gregory Hill has been on. Actually, Hello. it's Gregory Hill O'Connor, which is... That's an awful lot of surnames. Um, so, I, said Simon, slightly disparagingly. <laughs> I hope it's not too early for this, but given that it's the first witterings of Advent, I thought I'd email in... Oh, this came in ages ago. Anyway, with the Christmas film Cry for Help. Okay. As I'm sure is common, on Christmas Eve, my family and I settled down for a film. However, in our household, the genre of Christmas Eve film is a very specific but elusive one. Okay. So what what film to watch on Christmas Eve? Yeah, it is one that has evolved from habitual viewings of Armageddon and Independence Day to any and all disaster movies. At some point, this mutated to include conspiracy thrillers, newspaper-based films, and anything with Denzel Washington. Now, that that is throwing the net very wide. Last year, it was The Post. The common threads in all seem to be scenery-chewing motivational speeches, Mm -hmm. dodgy politicians, Mm -hmm. underdogs, Mm -hmm. and people storming into rooms with plot points. Most years I would have chosen the film by now. But this year I'm drawing a blank. I must ask for support of your wealth of film knowledge to suggest some options. Next year is sorted. It's going to be Le Mans 66. Any help would be appreciated. I think think Gregory Hill O'Connor, surname chap, has actually... It's a very wide net, but a I like the idea net. of a Chris. Uh, don't give me a film for Christmas Day. Give me a film for Christmas Eve. Well, I mean, you know, I have I have my own traditions. So, I mean, Love Actually is something which is sort of featured. I, I know, I know. In fact, all that, although I've, I've already done the Love Actually thing because I was wrapping presents the other day and I just flicked through the channel. Oh, really? Have, yeah. you ra- have you wrapped already? Yeah, I've done some wrapping, yeah. Wow. Because, and then Love Actually is on all the time. And then last night it was uh, It's Wonderful Life. Um, which uh, Child 2 sat down to watch uh, and, uh, and and I think fully appreciated. Krampus is usually quite good fun. Um, but I, yeah, Christmas Eve is a difficult one because, you see, I do end up doing Muppet Christmas Carol and I... It, uh, you, and you don't you, just, mm-hmm. you don't want that. You want to sort of um, he wants something different. To anyway, uh, suggestions are welcome. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk can text eight five zero five eight. Box office top ten coming up in just a moment. Just um, uh, an anonymous email for reasons that will become obvious about it's a wonderful life. Yeah, okay. I'd rather you didn't share my name for reasons okay. that become obvious. I'm a long term listener. Uh, we're getting to the time of year where people will talk about It's a Wonderful Life and how cloyingly sweet and idealistic it is. Mm-hmm. Turns out, it just says cue protest from Mark. Yeah, sorry. Thank Turns you. out, as with all movies, it depends on what you bring to it. And for me, last night's screening at the Polly in Falmouth 
was as harrowing a movie-going experience as I can remember. So let me explain. Okay. Like anyone, I had gone along hoping for a warm Christmas glow and perhaps a slight restoration of my faith in humanity. But as someone who's recently battled with mental health issues, including suicidal thoughts, what I got was something quite different. Mm -hmm. For 103 minutes, the film surgically took me apart, limb by limb. Every aspect of my own struggle was there on screen. The sense of a wasted life and talent, the crushing guilt over outbursts of anger to my children and loved ones, the total lack of hope, even a recent unexpected and I felt undeserved outpouring of support from friends and family. My brain recognised the pattern and went into its old routine, but not for me this time, for George Bailey. For the first time ever, when he reached the bridge, it seemed totally logical to me that he would jump. Why wouldn't he? When you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life for a while, it's easy to misremember George Bailey as a saint. In truth, he's anything but. At moments, we are shown him being cruel, arrogant, selfish, short-tempered, thoughtless and unkind. And for those of us whose own minds conspire to make us feel worthless, that's how the evidence mounts up. And for those of us who identify with George at his worst, that makes his redemption all the more powerful and personal. Because I can't escape the fact that if George Bailey is not defined by his worst moments, then neither am I. After the film, I got about six steps from the cinema door before collapsing, sobbing into my friend's arms. I couldn't explain what I felt because Frank Capra had made me feel everything in capital letters. It wasn't the experience I wanted from my Christmas cinema trip, but as someone overcoming mental illness and doubting my own worth, it was certainly the one I needed. Season's greetings to you both and to all the church, especially my fellow occupants of mental health mants. Please know that just like George Bailey, you are loved and valued more than you know. Anyway, I mean, that's interesting. And, And again, as our anonymous emailer picks up, you know, People take away completely different experiences based on what they bring to it. Yes, and but I would 100% endorse that email. I mean, it rings with something that I've been saying ad infinitum and boring people with, is that whenever people say It's a Wonderful Life is schmaltz, it's like, no, it isn't. It's a very dark film, and that's what makes the redemption in it work. Incidentally, I understand exactly what you mean in terms of the way in which you relate to uh, to George Bailey. And I think that anyone who's wrestled with any form of, um, you know, anxiety, uh, mental health issues, anything like that, as so many of us have, um, that character really strikes a chord. And I think also people can get misled by, one, the title, yeah. two, its reputation, and three, the cover, which are my... <laughs> no, it's, it's, Happy family. I know, I it's know. snowing, we're all smiling and everything and is the, great. And the thing is, what, what everyone remembers is, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, which is lovely, but but it's lovely because of where it comes. I mean, <clears> you know, it's... I, I, I'm so... Uh, I'm so pleased to hear that email because it's exactly right. The whole Capricorn thing is nonsense. And people who dismiss that film as sentimental schmaltz just either haven't watched it or haven't understood it. And it's a a stupid comparison to make. In the same ways that we did, you know, there's a lot of Shawshank before you get to the redemption. Slumdog, there's a lot of Slumdog before Before you get to the millionaire. It's the, you know, you you go through a lot of bad stuff before you get to the good stuff. Yeah, you are definitely halfway through It's a Wonderful Life and thinking... Is it? So here's the timetable. So we do the box office top 10 now. Right. Reviews until three. J.J. Abrams after three. Yes. Star Wars chat. Yes. After four. Yeah. Cats chat. Yeah. Tom Hanks inspiring the nation. Yeah. So we'll, we so we'll leave the nation on an up on an upbeat note. Number 10 is Elf. Oh, we're, we're doing that now, Rob. We are okay, doing right. that. That's why I said top box office top 10. Okay, next. but you're not leaping in at number 56. 
I wasn't going to come in uh, at number 56. 58. Uh, or 58, indeed. Why would you like me to come in at Because 58? it's on the, the list that I've got that you're working from. No. So, so you think it's a joke. You go, box office top 10, at number 58, pink wall. No, okay. I've I've only got. Uh, I'm starting at number ten. What did What did you want to say at fifty? Well, just that I think Pink Wall. Pink Wall is one of those interesting films in which right. you don't need to. You don't have to like the characters or you know sympathise with their positions in order to, to to believe in them. And what I said was, I found them quite hard to get on with, and I found the film itself quite hard to get on with. But I think that it, that I believed in it because it got under my skin. Those people, I found them annoying, and it got under my skin. So very quickly, yes. Citizen K, because you had Alex Gibney on the we show. Did, yes, it had a you know it's a, obviously a limited theatrical showing, but it was a film which aspired toward theatricality, and I think the subject matter of it, the Khodorkovsky story. Where's that then? Is that well, that's a chart? number forty-eight. I haven't got that either. I anyway, see. Okay, so fine. I've only I'm a I'm a top ten. Man that's fine. Okay. This week, at ten, Elf. Well, it's it's Elf. Is that it? Is that yeah yeah yeah? Elf? Well, what else is it? It's the same Elf it's always been. Okay. Yeah. Uh, nine is Home Alone. It, which, which I imagine it's is, is, is Park Circus. It's the same Home Alone. It's always been. You know, the other thing I will tell you is an interesting yes. thing. When we were doing the Secrets of Cinema program um, with uh, Kim Newman, the, the lead writer on that, and what Kim doesn't know about cinema about, about movies, you could write in the back of the po- of a postage stamp. And Kim's particular area of interest is uh, horror and and uh, you know fancy and sci-fi. And when we were writing that, he said, of course, you know that Home Alone is basically an uncredited remake of a film of a French film called Père Noël Code a bunch of numbers which is released over here as hide and go freak which is a story about a kid at home fending off homicidal maniac dressed as santa claus and he said that essentially that is what home alone is and i didn't know that and i've watched the film now and he's absolutely right is it good good's a hard word it's interesting because of how much it's it is the template for so home. no then the, that isn't what I said, is it? I know, that's what I'm interpreting it to be. Okay. I offered you good and you said <laughs> you didn't okay. take it up. Uh, now, at number eight, I'm in, I'm going to say uh, Jacques Poslubich, Millenera. Yes, yeah, so this wasn't uh, press screened. A Polish movie, to the tri- title translates as How to Marry a Millionaire. It's a comedy romance. Um, it's taken a whole bunch of money, but I said it wasn't press screened to us. So if anyone's seen it, do send us an email and let us know. Uh, Le Mans 66 is at number seven. Which apparently is going to be... Uh, our emailer's choice of Christmas, Christmas Eve, Eve next week, and I think yes. that's going to work. It's going to work very well because I think it's a, a real crowd pleasing film. I know there's been a lot of attention for Christian Bale's performance, but I want to flag up that I think Matt Damon is is really good in the film. I think he actually has the more difficult role. Um, ben from Sheffield, dear world's greatest film critic, and Simon. I mean, that's hardly is that uh, alongside Simon. Come on, we all know why they changed the name of Le Mans 66 for the US market. It's yeah. because they were worried that Americans would think they needed to see the other 65 films first. <laughs> well, you might find it funny. <laughs> Thanks very much. Why are you cross about that? You're not American. No, it's the way it's introduced. Oh, I see. Sorry, you're still, you're still sorry about that. that. Yes. He had me in the introduction, <laughs> basically. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, do you carry grudges? Well, uh, I, uh, yes. How long? How long you got? Well, I mean, because I'm an Olympic level grudge. Carrier. Oh, yeah, probably I'm not. still cross at people who were nasty to me in primary school. So, oh, I see. No, I don't think so. Really? Are you a forgiving person? I wish I was a forgiving person. It kind of depends, but yes. Listen, I've seen the Tom, the new Tom Hanks film twice. Okay. So I am. I will in 2020. I'm going to be even more forgiving. 
Okay. Oh, is that, is that so? It's uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Is a yes. film which encourages forgiving. I think that's probably fair to say. Okay. I think Tom Hanks in general encourages forgiving. You can hear Tom Hanks at the end of the show. I know. I'm looking forward to um, it. And I love the film. I th- I think here's here's my prediction. Okay. My, okay. My go first ahead. prediction okay, go ahead. for 2020. Okay. You're going to watch that film. Yeah. And you are going to cry your eyes out. Oh, great. Okay. That's it. I'm I'm made up already. That's, that's I like a good cry. That's what I think. Blue Story is at six. Yeah, she's okay. As I said, the controversy kind of got in the way of a, a reasoned response to it. But I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the film, but I think its heart is absolutely in the right place. And it has done really well. It's a very, very low-budget movie that was, you know, that, that came from Internet Roots and has done really, really well. Needs to be congratulated for that. Dave Mills in Canterbury during last week's box office top ten mark in a single sentence said that Blue Story had, quote, its heart in the right place and, quote, wore its heart on its sleeve. Oh, I'm it's sorry. reassuring and based on this evidence, not surprising, that Mark is a doctor of cinema and not medicine. <laughs> Actually, and just on the uh, on the subject of uh, Le Mans, yeah. Richard in Tamworth. Lemons. Indeed. Further to your discussion regarding films and cars changing their names, I must inform you that as confirmed by director James Mangold, on another podcast, apparently. There are other podcasts? The reason 66 Lemons had to change its name is simply and quite boringly down to copyright laws in this country. They weren't allowed to have the brand names of the cars in the title over here. And that... Well, but Le Mans 66 is a much better title than Ford v Ferrari. Ford v Ferrari just doesn't doesn't sound like an exciting movie. Black Christmas is a five. So I hadn't seen this uh, last week because it wasn't press screen, but I have now gone to see it. I went to see it at the, uh, the cinema in Shepherd's Bush at 11 o'clock in the morning which is probably not the ideal time to see it so there are two there's a, an original Black Christmas anyway which is the 1974 Bob Clark version which is a kind of well not Bob Clark it's the Bob Clark original which is a bit of a cult movie and is quite interesting there was a 2006 remake which is not very good at all this really shares only the title and sort of premise with the uh, with the original it's directed by Sophie Tucker who co-wrote it with April Wolf. it was shot in New Zealand and what it attempts to do is to put a, a sort of feminist twist on the old slasher tropes. It has a sorority group stalked by a mysterious hooded slasher in the run-up to Christmas. Among the group is Imogen Poots' Riley Stone, who has a trauma in her past involving one of the local horrible jocks. Meanwhile, the frat house is involved in all these weird hazing rituals that are sort of less animal's house than, than devil's reign. And the film basically takes those horror ideas and, and tries to give it a kind of, you know, a, a more contemporary feminist slant. It opens with a slimy lecturer quoting uh, someone uh, essentially saying that, you know, men are better than women and, 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 you know, men lift women up in their wake and then picks on uh, the character of Riley and says, what do you think the speaker meant? And she says, well, I think what he's saying. And he goes, aha, well, it's not a he, it's a she, it's Camille Paglia. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. Um, uh, you know, they, 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 they've thought this through and they're doing something interesting. With it. But what then happens is... Um, this kind of setup of it's a feminist rewriting of this stuff. It's got this central set piece in which <clears throat> the girls are humiliating the boys with a song which is pointing fingers at their abuse. But the weird thing is the film just falls completely flat. I mean, it's it sounds like an interesting idea, and yet somehow it it I tonally it's so weirdly misjudged. I couldn't figure out it was meant to be ironic, whether it's meant to be pastiche, whether it's meant to be self-referential. There are long sections in it that are pretty dull, followed by short sections in it that are just a bit silly. The scares are so oddly orchestrated that you can't figure out whether they're meant to be ironic or meant to be scary. The film also deals with some fairly heavy subject matter but doesn't really know exactly what tonal level it's going to take with it. It doesn't have the heft or the acerbic bite to pull it off. 
I mean, watching it, I went from being bored to confused and occasionally intrigued, but never entertained or scared, which is a shame because it sounds like such an interesting film, but it isn't. Uh, Black Christmas is at five. Knives Out is at four. Let me just do this from Katie in Ashford, like this year's brilliant... Oh, no, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, It's from Liz. Um, I'm sure you've had hundreds of these types of messages from all the Agatha Christie fans, but just in case you haven't, I wanted to suggest that the likely reason no Frenchman has ever sounded like Hercule Poirot... Is because he's Belgian. Is because he is, in fact, I know, and in fact, thank you to everyone. 137 separate pieces of communication telling us precisely... I know, and I'm sorry, that was complete... It's like saying Plastic Bertrand is French or like saying uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme is French. I mean, the thing is, famous Frenchman is a fairly short list, and it is Hergé, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Hercule Poirot. So about famous Belgians now. That's what I said. So famous Frenchmen. Oh, there we go. I did it again. Yes. Well, there we go. So, I, so I'm literally... I'm... And the singing nun, she was Belgian. Was she? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently. Anyway, oh, there we go. Knives Out is at four. Last Christmas at three. Well, it's it's hanging on in there in the box office. It's, you know, it's... it's it, it's clearly finding an audience. I've had many communications with people saying, well, you can say what you like. I went to see it and I enjoyed yes, it. So exactly. fair enough. Frozen 2 is at 2. Horatio Harris from Tasmania. Hello. Uh, I'm writing in medium term list, the first time emailer. I would very much like to be baptised into the church and I'm a first time emailer at the age of 12 to give my review of Frozen 2, which, okay. I, which I was forced to watch against my will. My dad has been using Frozen 2 as a threat of punishment if I don't keep in line. <laughs> what? But alas, the fateful day <laughs> that's, came... That's not going to work. ...when I was forced to watch it, um, not, not by dad, but by my school for a year six excursion before we move up to high school. The movie was Tosh. And the only thing saving... <laughs> so how old is this emailer? 12. And, and uses the word Tosh. Tosh. Yes. Wow. But just because that's such a quaint old... That's you and we say tosh. A combination of trash and bosh. Is that where it comes from? Yeah. I never knew that. Um, yeah, uh, tosh, 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 where I was... Uh, the only the movie was tosh, and the only thing saving it from total disaster was the animation. The movie itself was so bad I couldn't even relax, chill, let alone sleep. It was so predictable I could guess when there was a song or a plot twist coming up, as this movie wasn't at all inspirational. Are there any films that you would recommend to a large group of 12-year-olds to view? Well, there's loads of films. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I know loads of people who really like Frozen 2. I was kind of underwhelmed by it, but I think I'm sort of slightly in the minority with that. Uh, Here's a splendidly named Poppy D. Bill, who is 13. I'm 13. I'm Poppy Deebill. I'm writing to share my experience of Frozen 2. Me and my dad listen to your show every week and love to use your jokes to confuse family and friends. I've been wanting to email for a while, but have not felt I had anything to contribute. It doesn't stop most people, Poppy, I have to say. However, I feel that sharing my experience of this piece of cinema may, may be of value. When I was four, we lost my younger sister, and as you can imagine, we were all heartbroken, especially my parents. A year on, my sister Molly arrived, and we wouldn't change her for the world. We just so happened to go and watch this film as a family on the weekend of my past sister's birthday. And, oh my word, I don't think we were quite prepared for the emotional roller coaster that we were strapping ourselves in for. I find change really hard and have a constant fear of losing loved ones, so I think I could really connect with both Anna and Elsa. And I think... My mum could too. All the way through the first half of this film, I could tell the emotions were running high, mainly from my mum squeezing my hand so tightly I think it would fall off. But when a certain point in the film was reached, there was not a dry eye anywhere. I somehow suddenly felt dragged into this storyline and was lost in the music and the plot. Uh, It will therefore always have a place in my heart 
forever. Well, you know, so there you go. A beautiful and a so a coruscating email from a twelve-year-old listener in Tasmania, and a beautiful supportive email from a thirteen-year-old listener called Poppy. Thank you. Well, that's you know, it, it, as I said, I was underwhelmed by Frozen Two, but I know many people who weren't, and uh, and it was. And thank you for both of those emails because it you know just goes to show, as you were kind of mentioning before, a lot of it depends on what you bring to a movie as well. Box office number one is Jumanji The Next Level. The most remarkable thing about Jumanji The Next Level, I, I was never a fan of the first Jumanji movie. I remember when you and I were at Radio 1 back in a previous century and we first got DVD players and they gave out DVDs to show you how your DVD player worked. Remember this? Yes. And one of the ones that they gave out was Jumanji. And I thought, oh, I'll watch this on this new DVD, whatever that is. And I remember thinking it's actually not much good at all. So then when they relaunched, rebooted uh, Jumanji, I mean, there's a thorough space adventure in the middle of it. When they relaunched it, I thought, you know, why is anyone remaking or rebooting or sequeling this? Because no one called for it. And then actually it was the first one was solidly funny. The, the idea that you then go back and do it again, it's like, okay, you can't possibly pull this off for a second time. And they do. It's good fun and it's not changing the face of cinema, but it's, you know, it's it, it's well done and it's kind of got an interesting body swap thing going on and all the sort of polymorphic perversity thing works rather well. And the set pieces are well orchestrated. And the only thing I would say is I don't want there to be another one. Because I feel that doing it once was wow. Doing it a second time was okay. You got away with that. You got away with that, and well done because that was that was really good fun. But enough. Don't push your luck. We have a lobby correspondent. Here's Martin from Tunbridge Wells. Jumanji, the next level, absolutely flipping brilliant. I just loved it. What a romp. What a brilliant, clever, lovely film. Really good fun. Flipping apparently. Flipping apparently. Uh, Martin, thank you. We have got other lobby correspondents. Spectrographically analysed, and that was... <laughs> it was, and they all concerned Star Wars. Uh, just finally on, on Jumanji, which is yeah. the, the UK number Jumanji, one. Jumanji, the next level. Heath Stevenson. Hello, Heath. It says, I have one issue with the media hype train that accompanies any film with Dwayne The Rock Johnson in it. OK. Social media has recently been littered with the classic The Rock and Kevin Hart double act. If this was all I had seen about the movie, I could be forgiven for thinking that they were the only two in it. Where are the other actors? Where is Karen Gillan? She is a great actor and will be a big draw for UK crowds and Doctor Who fans alike. Why has she been summarily excluded from the majority of the press for this show? It's a real shame, as I would have been much more interested to hear her voice rather than the excitable shrill of Kevin Hart or whatever The Rock has to say. We get it. We can smell what The Rock's cooking. He's been cooking it a lot recently. Regardless of whether it'll be all right in the end, it's always all right on a Friday afternoon. So that's a weekly positive to look forward to. There you go. Well, I mean, all I can say on the subject of that is that one of the things that uh, Jumanji, the next level, does is it brings in two new crotchety old characters played by Danny DeVito and Danny Glover. And then because the body swaps, they're multifarious. It's not that each character, there's many body swaps. So what happens is the lead actors get to pretend to be a range of other people. And so, obviously, Jack Black is, uh, you know, one of the stars. And Karen Gillan, as you quite rightly say, is... Uh, I mean, Karen Gillan has had a really, really successful movie career and is really funny and is really good in uh, in Jumanji. I think it's probably that those two are out doing the, the PR circuit. But then, you know, never judge any film by its publicity campaign and certainly never judge any film by its publicity campaign on social media. Correct. Because that's, you know, that's just... it's That's not 
how you find out what a film's like. What have we got that's new? Well, um, the, so this because we're now in that weird period when this week there's really only two films out because we're just before Christmas, and then then there's the what are now being referred to as the Twixtmas period. So you get the Boxing Day release. I know. Are you you're you're just a, you don't do the you don't do that word at all. Well, nobody uses that word. Uh, well, more and more people do. I don't think they do. And if they do, they're wrong. Well, that's possible, but more and more people do use that word. The, what's the word again? Twixtmas. And it means the bit between Christmas. I, I understand what it means. No, no, it's I just know, no, no okay. one no one uses it in conversation. No, but you say that, but it's like you're saying that like, nobody says emoji and then they do. Or no. nobody says lol and then they do. Okay. And nobody you know it's, it, you can't stop it. I'm um, Stephen Fry will be in here telling you that there's nothing you can do about it. It's now a word. I think it'll probably be in the if it hasn't already. Does it involve a Twix? Because <laughs> if it involves a Twix, I'm very happy to go along with it. But if it's just here we are between just for the it's period Simon, between Christmas Simon, and New Year, it's twixt must. Oh, I see. Twixt, Less betwixt, and between. Ah, okay. Oh, I see. All right. So we will in this show we'll be reviewing a couple of films that are out. Well, one of them's out already. One of them is out today. One of them is coming out on Boxing Day. Yes. And the one that we're about to talk about is coming out on January the 1st. So this okay, so is like just, a bumper edition. Yeah, but just because, you know, we were about to go into the Christmas period yes. and go into hibernation for a few weeks. So The Gentleman, um, which is a new film by Guy Ritchie, which, as far as I understand, was formerly known as Tough Guys. In fact, at the end of the scroll, I think it says Tough Guys is the name that's of, of the production company, also formerly known as Bush, apparently. Um, we saw this together because there was a point at which the two stars, who was uh, Matthew uh, McConaughey and uh, Hugh Grant, would possibly get to be. Show. But that couldn't happen for reasons of the general election. But we still we, we still ended up seeing the film together anyway. So it's yes. interesting. So we've both seen it. So after, I mean, I was never a huge Guy Ritchie fan at the beginning. You know, I was kind of less impressed by the geezery laddies than anybody else. I, I think everybody was down on Revolver. Then he made the Sherlock Holmes movies, which I did like, in which I thought that flashy visual style that he has was put to good use. Then more recently, we've had things like King Arthur Daily, He's All Right, which was all over the place and seemed to be kind of, you know, going back to your then. It was the man from Uncle Before that, wasn't there? And then Aladdin, of course, which actually turned out to be very successful. I think we had, you know, quite a few listeners wrote in and said they liked it. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of it, but it's fine. So anyway, Matthew McConaughey and, and uh, Hugh Grant um, are the stars. Matthew Mahogany is Mickey Pearson who is an American expat who has a large marijuana business in the UK. That's what the Bush title would have been referring to, I assume. Uh, Hugh Grant is Fletcher, who is this kind of archly camp, slightly lispy journalist who has the dirt on Matthew McConaughey's character and wants something in return. So at the very beginning of the film... And correct me if I'm getting any any of these. At the very beginning of the film, we see Charlie Hunnan coming back to his house, which is sort of you know quite uh, quite flash, and essentially Hugh Grant is there lurking in the shadows. And Hugh Grant then sort of ambushes him and says, "I've got I can't do that. I can't do a version." Thankfully. No, thankfully. Also, we we there, apparently there aren't any clips, so you're going to have to live with me explaining what the Hugh Grant. Can can you do a version of what Hugh Grant sounds no, like? No, no, fine. It's okay. a camp lisp. So got a camp lisp. Yeah. Okay, so he says, "I know all this dirt about your, you know, the, your boss because he's a, you know, a factotum. I know the dirt on all your boss, and I've got this story with all this sort of stuff." And he also has with him a screenplay. 
So he's got all the dirt that he's going to take to his newspaper editor, who's played by Eddie Marzan in really sort of, you know, a kind of caricature. This is what a horrible tabloid editor is like. Hugh Grant is this kind of slimy journal who's got the dirt on somebody who has got this huge uh, marijuana industry, but also has a screenplay, which then enables him to narrate the story of the film from the point of view of a sort of journo screenwriter. So he, he'll constantly be able to say, oh, well, you need a bit of action in this bit. Now you need a bit of intrigue in that bit. You need a bit of this and that. And he then recounts this story in flashback of how Mickey was thinking of stepping down from his thing and he got involved in a shake-up or a shake-down and then all the twisty characters and all the turns that come in, that make this into a kind of narrative. And all the characters in it have all got kind of geezery names. So Dry Eye, Coach, Primetime, John the Bastard, uh, a character whose name is spelt P-H-U-K and there's a long thing about how that, you know, that's all about. And they're all, they're all geezery sort of stereotypes of some form or another. And the whole thing, I think is meant to be very smartly self-referential, very knowing, very, um, you know, very clever. I have to say that I found it coming across as irritatingly smug and a little bit annoying and rubbish. And there's a number of reasons why. And the main reason is weirdly summed up by the appearance of Colin Farrell, who is a kind of, it was, it was in the film. And... There's a lot of speeches in the film in which people say things that you sort of shouldn't be allowed to say, but they're kind of done in this sort of self-referential, you know, geezery, knowing way. But you're saying things that are, that are outrageous we shouldn't be able to say. And I was thinking about, if you think about Colin Farrell in something like In Bruges, there are things in In Bruges in which Colin Farrell says outrageous things, OK? But the, but the heart of In Bruges, because In Bruges is written and directed by Martin McDonagh, who knows about the human condition and understands the sort of the Shakespearean nature of really scabrous dialogue. In this, people get to see it, say those outrageous things and Colin Farrell's in there, which always connects it back to Ian Bruges. But it just sounds to me like mockney British Tarantino fans getting drunk in the pub that Guy Ritchie owns because he's not Martin McDonough. He's the guy who wrote Revolver. Hugh Grant, whose career is actually, he's having a really great sort of career renaissance at the moment. I think he's doing some of the best work he's done. It seemed to me that he was in the film because the film, its portrayal of the press is not great. And of course, as we know, you know, Hugh Grant, part of the hacked off campaign in which, so this is a chance to play a reporter who's really slimy, taking his story to an editor who's even more slimy. And, you know, the whole thing is sort of like an arch joke about how slimy the press is, which kind of wears a little bit thin. And the story involves endless double crosses and twists, none of which were entertaining I have to say for me or surprising and somebody once said to me we're talking about you know I used to do things like late night review and all that kind of stuff and somebody once said to me well I know you know, one of the problems that I have with those th those programs is that they just sound like a bunch of middle class people who know each other laughing at each other's jokes and I'll be honest with you that's what I thought the gentleman felt like for all the the geezery shtick it's terribly it's terribly Dean Street it's terribly Groucho Club it's terribly, you know, sitting around in a pub I own. I never, I never, I never felt entertained by it. No matter the, the kind of the talent on screen and all the rest of it, for all the stuff that the screenplay was throwing at me, I never found myself entertained. And what happened was we came out of the screening and you said, so what do you think? And I went, oh. And, and I think you'd felt, you'd felt slightly differently to me. Well... <clears throat> I think I enjoyed it a little bit more. I mean, I, I, have, I share the same intense dislike of Gangster Geezer 
movies that, that you have, um, anything that makes them look cool and fine, I instantly kind of take against. In fact, in the, since then... I heard an interview with a guy, you know, Peaky Blinders. On, I know it's a TV. Yeah, no, yes, I do. Know. Yes, about yeah, yeah. Birmingham Mafia, like yeah, the turn yeah. of the 20th century. Yeah. This guy's written a book about the real Peaky Blinders, and he makes a particular point of saying they weren't, they weren't cool. They weren't nice to women. They weren't nice to children. They were thoroughly unpleasant people. And he was basically saying, you know, enjoy the television, but it's not like that. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, whenever I come to a program like this where I feel as though Guy Ritchie wants to be the Matthew McConaughey character. You know, that's the guy that he yeah. wants to be. Thinking, yeah. Fine, okay, you know, we can go with it. But it's really, these are nasty, really vicious, uh, sadistic people who I don't particularly find entertaining. However, having said that, Matthew McConaughey is always very watchable and I enjoyed watching him and I thought Colin Farrell was, again... Colin Farrell uh, is... Very, all- very entertaining. Colin Farrell is always great, but didn't you feel... I mean, you've seen In Bruges, right? I don't think I ever did see in Bruges. Oh, okay, fine. Well, what I'd say is, if you want A-list Colin Farrell doing, you know, in in a film in which the dialogue is literally... Stop saying literally. In which the dialogue is peeling the wallpaper off the walls because it's so acidic, and then put that next to this, which just does feel like that kind of mock... I mean, this it did feel like a very retrograde step. And I, I want to be clear about this. I don't think that Guy Ritchie is a terrible filmmaker. I know there was a time when I thought that Guy Ritchie was a terrible filmmaker, but then Joy of Joys, he made the Sherlock Holmes movies, which I really enjoyed. And I think on a technical level, there is, uh, you know, there's a sort of skill. There's a skill, and what we at least what we don't get is all those kind of uh, the visual ticks that we that, that were used in Lockstock and then were reused over and over and over again to the point that they just descended into cliche. But I did feel that this tried my patience and I did wonder and I wonder whether you felt the same way that it's a very very A-list cast and I wondered what some of them there is one character particularly whose narrative takes him to a place that I did think I'm not sure you have to be doing that role yes and which is which is true. Plus, there's a gratuitous use of Arsenal's football ground, which I found quite. Yeah, that that was the thing that really got under your skin, I wasn't it? That, I found that very upsetting. <laughs> so, but you know, it's, I, it's maybe thumb, I it's a thumbs down from me. Well, I kind of, I mean, I just take against gangster movies, full stop, and yeah. anything that makes them seem cool. But you like the Long Good Friday? I also found probably, it very, very. What was the whole style of it was irritating. That whole because the screenplay device. Yeah didn't work no. for me and it gave it and there's gave and them the, an excuse to and you show know, clips of film editing and, and you know the thing that really did it was the moment when the Hugh Grant character suddenly said and we were proper cinema you know celluloids is for, for, uh, 235 anamorphic and it's like I know that that's meant to sound really in and hit but it just sounds terrible yes a few minutes ago you were talking about Twixtmas yes let me just say that in, in Norway, okay. Romjul is the period between Christmas and oh, New Year. Lovely. That's beautiful. In Sweden, Melandagana. I apologise for my Swedish not being great. In Finnish, Valapaivat, meaning the same thing. In German, Zwischen den Jahren, which means between the years. And according to Clean Socks Fox, the bit between Christmas and New Year is called Crimbo Limbo. <laughs> now that, that that's great Crimbo Limbo we can live with right I'll go with what okay. else have we got so on Boxing Day Little Women a new version of the Louise May Alcott film which we used to it Louise May Alcott film new version of the Louise May Alcott novel which has been filmed and staged and you know umpteen different versions um, this is written and directed by Greta Gerwig 
uh, the most recent there was the there's the Gillian Armstrong version, isn't there, from the 1990s, which I really like. There's the version with Catherine Hepburn. I mean, there's umpteen versions of Little Women. So this has Saoirse Ronan as Joe Marsh, who obviously was a star in Lady Bird, Emma Watson as Meg, Florence Pugh as Amy, Eliza Scanlon as Beth, Laura Dern as Mommy, and Meryl Streep as Aunt March. Um, here's a clip from Little Women. I just, I just feel, I just feel like. Women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and I'm so sick of people saying that, that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm, I'm so lonely. Which is one element of the film but the other element of the film is the warmth and the laughter and the charm. Now, what's interesting is this. The film opens with a scene that's essentially straight out of the second volume of Little Women, which, and I had to look this up because I didn't know this because I'm fairly ignorant, okay? The second volume of Little Women, which apparently in the US was always part of the same book, whereas in the UK was hived off, was re released separately as either... Little Women Married or Good Wives. And um, and I was watching this with the, the good lady, Professor Her Indoors, who's a huge fan of Little Women. And she refers to the section that that's from as Good Wives. So it starts further on. And it then flashes back to the younger versions of Little Women. And then the structure of the movie moves backwards and forwards between their older incarnations and their younger incarnations. So the film has stuff from uh, the second volume right up front. We see uh, Jo going into the offices of a newspaper to sell a story that she's written, then flashes back to the events of earlier on. And then we move backwards and forwards with the time period being uh, shuffled. The... Um, the film plays up, I think, very smartly the the autobiographical elements, emphasising the connection between um, Louise May Alcott and the character of Joe, and, and it also achieves this kind of this slightly meta state, which is in relation to Gerwig's own career because she loved uh, Joe as a child. The film is shot around Concord, Massachusetts, where Louise May Alcott lived, and there's this very clever intertwining of of biographical detail and uh, fictional material from the book, and also a a, a very a very smart bifurcation of the narrative towards the end, which allows something which reminded me of the end of Adaptation or the end of the French Lieutenant's Woman. But the main thing about it is this. Firstly, it's just, it's a great film. I mean, you just sit there and you watch it and think, this is really, this is well-directed. This is brilliantly cast for a start. Okay, The cast are pretty much perfect uh, all the, the key characters I just told you about. Then also Chris Cooper, Tracy Letts, Bob Odenkirk. I mean, everyone is really, really well cast. And some of the casting is actually quite, quite daring. Um, I was talking to the good lady, Professor Her Indoors, immediately after we watched the film. She just loved it. And we were saying, OK, well, you know, what is it that you that you particularly love? And she said two things. She said, well, firstly, for a certain generation of, uh, you know, of women readers, she said, you have to understand that it's, it's in our DNA. We grow up with this book and we love this book and it becomes its likening. And then she said this thing, which is, I think, really interesting. She said, you know, it's like with Lord of the Rings when you just want to be back in Middle Earth or it's like Harry Potter when you just want to be back in Hogwarts. She said, with the thing with Little Women is you just want to be in that world because the writing is so evocative. And, and she said, I agree with this, that what the film manages to do is to wrap you in 
that feeling of the family warmth with all the conflicts and everything else that's going in, it's a, it's a wonderful world to be in. You really do feel that you are there in that house, in that room, in that environment, and then going out into the world with all, you know, with everything that the story takes with it. Um, it has the warmth of the chaos, the, uh, the unstuffiness, but it also... It also, you know, it has an edginess. It's very modern. It's very much about finding your own way and defining your own your own life. But also it understands the interplay between the past and the present and between the way things were and the way things are. I really like the score. I thought the Alexander Desplat score was was really good. It looks fantastic. It's shot by um Yorick Lasalle and it's it looks like it's kind of natural light. Funnily enough, watching it, the thing I thought of at one point was Barry Lyndon, because all the interior scenes have got that sort of soft, you know, everyone talks about the way Barry Lyndon looks and the fact that NASA, you know, provided lenses to Stanley Kubrick so he could shoot by candlelight and all that sort of stuff. The natural glow of the screen in Little Women is quite something. I mean, the outdoor scenes, you can smell the grass, you can feel the air. It's it, 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 its almost like that that Chimino thing about everything shot at Magic Hour. Well, I'm sure it actually wasn't, I'm sure, because you, you require sort of massive budgets to do that. It made me laugh a couple of times. It made me cry a couple of times. It made me feel that I was absolutely part of that story and I was absolutely part of those characters. And I thought it was a really, really well done adaptation. of it. And there, there's a reason why this story keeps getting retold because it's a brilliantly involving story. But that, it, that doesn't mean that anyone can just come along. So what I think she's done is that she's done something really fascinating with playing with the with the time structure, playing with the autobiography and the and the book itself, and as I said, I'm not somebody who I don't my literary knowledge of this is is is, is fairly non-existent, but I loved it. Somebody who loves the book loved it, and so far, everyone I have spoken to loved it. Is it too late to change our holiday plans? Because Greta Gerwig is going to be on this show on the third of January. Yeah, it's a shame. And I'm thinking, so that's Edith and Robbie. And I think maybe if we just turned up as well. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that I don't. That's fine. I don't think Edith that's will have fine. a problem with that. We were talking about Le Mans. Yeah. Uh, and and lemons sixty six and all that kind of, and all the stuff about naming it and uh, on Twitter. Uh, someone called Steve Bannister said uh, about Le Mans 66 being changed from Ford v Ferrari due to laws about having brand names in movie titles. Right. As claimed by James Mangold, director of the film. Are you familiar with the Lego movie, he says. OK, to which a reply from James Mangold. So in other oh, words, okay. this is now the end of the debate. This is meta. OK. OK, go on. Lego- hang, 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 to be clear, James Mangold is replying to a tweet saying that, you know, you can't say it's got anything to do with brand names. Because because what about the Lego Lego movie? movie. So James Mangold says, Lego movies have permission of the trademark holder to use the Lego trademark as Lego. It's involved in the making and merchandising of those films. We did not collaborate with car companies as we did not want to clear our content through their PR departments. Thus, no permission. There you go. That is that it. That is it. There, there is, we go. Thank you make, very much. Makes perfect sense. I'm sure someone will go back and say, yeah, what do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you directed the film. Doesn't mean you know. Yeah. Then again, I've got to say, I, I, I myself have not been above saying such things. But that's a, that's a very good answer. Thank you very much to James Mangle for, you know, 
So the email is mayo at bbc.co.uk and the text is 85058. You might have noticed that the final Star Wars movie, uh, the ninth of nine... Uh, we well, say final yesterday. Well, I mean final in, in this, this in this saga. Yes, in this particular saga. saga you know. it, the, the end of this saga is happening right now. Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker is in cinemas at the moment, uh, and a lot of you have seen it and wish to tell us what you think, and Bef- also wish to tell the filmmakers what they should have done. Exactly. But before we go any further, <laughs> we're going to hear from the director, J.J. Abrams. After this. We've spotted the fugitives. That's a clip from Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I'm delighted to say J.J. Abrams is back on the program. Hello, J.J., how are you? Great to be here, thanks. How are you? No, but really, how are you? I swear, how are you? How are you doing? Good. I'm, do- I'm, I'm doing fine, but I haven't just had this big movie. Well, maybe there. you did. <laughs> um, what can you tell us? About the movie? Yeah, <clears> it's <throat> just, I've seen it and I loved it. Oh, that's very, very general. But, but I don't... I, I don't really know what we can say about it without spoiling it for everyone who hasn't been to see it. So tell us what you can about this. Well, it's uh, it's the it's the end of uh, the the three trilogies of the Skywalker saga. It is a, I hope, thrilling adventure. A group of friends out in this uh, kind of breakneck, uh, crazy pursuit to do the right thing. Uh, and also, hopefully, it's it's visually thrilling. Hopefully, it's romantic. Hopefully, it's. Uh, <laughs> It's surprising and scary and moving, and you leave the theater feeling better than when you got there. But that's, of course, not for me to to say. It's there. Well, I agree. I agree. I agree with all of that. So we okay. can't. But we can't really talk about much that's happening in the movie. You can without. say that there are multiple uh, bipeds who yes. uh, do things and and speak to each other. But that may be a spoiler. And there's quite a lot of yes, whatever that is. There's tons of that. There's lots of that. Yeah. Okay. Is it? By the ending here, I mean this film. Is it the ending that you expected? Well, when Larry Kasdan and I were writing The Force Awakens, uh, we had many discussions about what we thought might happen down the line, but we were just scrambling to get that film on its feet. And uh, the idea of episode nine was years away and movies away, and so we were just working hard on seven. And then uh, Ryan Johnson came in and did Last Jedi, uh, I'm a big fan of his, and he did uh, his film, and we obviously, over the years, I was not supposed to do episode nine at that point, so I was just the audience, and I was watching it and, and loving it, and and then Kathy Kennedy called and said, would you come back and do episode nine? And so we just continued the same conversations that Larry and I had had, and so a lot of what we ended up doing were things that we had been discussing, a lot of things we had not discussed and we assimilated and sort of synthesized what Ryan had done. So it was a combination of an ongoing conversation, things that we've been thinking about for years, and also suddenly it wasn't far away, it was now. <laughs> and we had three fewer months to make this film than Force Awakens, so it was a, from the beginning of it, it was a, it was a bit of a, a trot. When we spoke for <laughs> a bit of a trot, yes. When we spoke the last time, you were talking about it was really nice to come out of the bubble and to tell everybody about this film that you've made. Did did the bubble that you've just been in feel like a 
I don't know if bubbles can be tougher, but you know, was it was this bubble more difficult because you had to tie up everything as opposed to the first one where everyone was saying, "What is JJ going to do with Star Wars?" Well, it was definitely tougher this time, mostly because it was you know wrapping up not three films but but nine. You know, obviously the pressure of whatever the revelations would be, whatever the choices were, we knew it was going to any any choice we made, literally any choice, narrative, design location uh, would please someone and and infuriate someone else. So we just knew this was not about trying to please anyone or certainly everyone, because I wouldn't know how to do that, nor do I think you want to go into something no. with that ambition, but you want to do something that feels right to you. And so that that's what we tried to do. I imagine you saw Avengers Endgame mm-hmm. this year, but I wonder if you watched it with a completely unique perspective, which is they are tying up mm-hmm. a bunch of films and now I've got to go and do the same. They did a very good job of it. Mm. I just wonder if you watched that and thought, uh, that's what I got to do. I thought that, you know, they did a, a brilliant job and it was it was the same, but it was different. Uh, and, and it was encouraging to see that something could be wrapped up in that way. Uh, but it was obviously, it was different enough that it was more sort of inspiration and a reminder that it can be done than something else. Did you go back and watch one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? You could have just said one through eight. It would have been faster. It would have been. But um, I'll sit here. I'm good. Uh, sure. I, we, we, we went back and watched. We, we watched the films. Partly. Are, you, are you giving me notes, by the way? Well, I just have a couple thoughts. <laughs> the, 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 the experience of watching these movies uh, was, frankly, more daunting than watching Endgame. Because you, you see these things and George Lucas, frankly, made it look so easy. And it's just, it isn't. And so watching these movies is a humbling thing. And realizing, you know, this is a religion for some people. And, and how do you take these things and choose which threads, themes, characters to continue? So it was, it was part of the, the process. And it was as inspiring as it was intimidating. We've had a lot of correspondence, a lot of emails from people who've been to see the screenings where they get seven and eight. And then it goes straight into nine. And some people have watched it from one to eight uh, before going to nine. Is there a, and then other people have said, no, there's there's this machete way of watching, which is to see them in a different order, which is four, five, Mm. two, three. What's the J.J. Abrams way? If people want to go prepped, yeah. If they're going to go and see it this weekend, they want to be fully prepped. What what would... Well, only because I'm I'm so old, I I would say it's four, five, six, and then one, two, three, and then seven, eight, nine, which I'm sure is lunacy because who would do that? <laughs> but right. but it's like the way I, I grew up, but who the hell cares? I, I, I think probably one through nine is probably the way to do it, I would guess. Okay. I, Can I, I want to ask you about John Williams because you grew up listening to his music and you hear the incredible impact that, that his score has done uh, in the movies. And I think you've said in the past that Binary Sunset from episode four is your favorite piece of... It changes. Of, I mean, that's one of... It's such a beautiful piece of music. But now when you get to work with him on, on this project, you know, for the last time, you just give us a few lines about what John Williams has brought to this final film. Because oh. I, I, I was listening to some of the soundtrack this morning and he's done it again. He, I, it's like talking about an actual, you know, superhero in our midst. I think in a way we've all had his music in our lives for all of our lives, it, it seems. And and anyone who takes him for granted needs to reconsider because he's just, it, it's like having, you know, Mozart in our midst who works on, on movies. He's just, he's he's impossible. And he does it again and again and again. And he, he creates these themes that you've never heard before. But once you hear them, are these inevitable pieces of our lives? And you just, you're like, oh, yes, of course, that theme. 
but no one can do that like he can. And, and so his music, not just for the film, but I just think for our lives, he is enriching everyone's life every time he writes a cue. And I, I just I can't say enough about him, not just as a as a composer, because he's incomparable, but as a gentleman, he is just the loveliest, sweetest, most thoughtful, crazy humble person you've ever met. It literally is as if he does not understand who he is at all. Like it's it's like it's like he he he'll literally he'll conduct a piece. You'll be brought to tears. He'll turn around and genuinely not looking for anything. He'll say, was that okay? As if he's never done it. And I'm like, and you're looking at him through your, your wet eyes saying, yeah, yeah, that was okay. You know, he's In your just, head you're saying, yes, but you're John Williams. Uh, it's, it's impossible. And, 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 and yet a collaborative, you know, hungry to constantly push the, the boundaries to, to do better. It's like he's just, you can't believe he exists. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to seeing it again, I booked the whole family to see it this weekend. Oh, it's so sweet. Is particularly to go back and listen to the score because inevitably you're getting distracted by all the revelations and the story and the right. that bit. Um, and but but to fully appreciate what he's done, I think you need to see it two or three times. I, all I can tell you is his music is for this film, for I think any film he's done, and the man's been nominated for fifty-one. Academy Awards. I mean, it's impossible. You know, I think that if there's an excuse to see any movie multiple times, it's John Williams. What did you least lose sleep over? What did I least lose sleep no, over? No, I'll rephrase. What did you lose sleep over the most for this film? Oh, the most? Yeah. It's the opposite question. Was that another note? I have some thoughts about that also. <laughs> uh, I think uh, what, I, what I lost the most sleep over, which is the third way to say it, uh, I think is... Uh, oh, I, I, everything. I mean, li- the, the the logistics of shooting the the, the set pieces because the the scope of the pictures is pretty huge. So how we were going to do any of it was was enormous. Obviously, the narrative of the film, what, you know, what we were saying, what we were going to do, just because no matter what we did, we knew it was going to be divisive and and, and controversial. Um, were you worried Straight. about it being divisive? I mean, I wasn't worried about it. It was sort of like uh, it was. We knew at the very beginning. It was. It was before we even started it that it was. It was a given that we were going to. No matter what choice we made, it was going to. You know, there would be factions. But the so-called fandom menace. Yes, uh, but but not necessarily even any one group. Anyone. I mean, there is no fan. Someone just asked me. You know, no. Did you go about trying to please everyone? And I, I, I said, not that I would want that to be the case, that shouldn't be the approach, but how would you do that? What is the way to please everyone? Like, is, there is no fan that represents all the fans. There, everyone has their own opinion, and whether or not you're part of a group or not, you know, it, everyone is right. Everyone has their opinion. Do I wish, and this is far beyond a Star Wars issue, that opinion didn't immediately go to outrage, didn't immediately go to attacking and cruelty? I think that there's a sort of the the mo at the moment seems to be that you know people go to these crazy hyperbolic and and often cruel states defending their politics their nationality their you know race their sexual preference you know the films they love the stories they it's like everything is you're not making a statement if you're not doing it in a vitriolic mm-hmm. way and i just think that's unfortunate star wars is part of all of that but, you know, we approached this, the, the story from hopefully from the inside out, hoping that it would affect people and knowing that some people would love it and some wouldn't. 
And finally, JJ, I wonder if many times you had cause to think that you, you and your team got the casting that you wanted because you brought us Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Adam Driver and Donald Gleeson and every one of them is a star in this film. Well, and I only say this, you know, for him, Oscar Isaac, because if I didn't say it, he'd be like, thanks. Thanks. So, so, I mean, John, I can so, add in- so John and Daisy and, and, and Adam and Donald. Okay, um, Richard E. Grant. I never met him. No, I didn't. He was fantastic. Um, he was amazing, by the way. So Richard E. Grant, you know, he has fragrances. You know this, right? He makes fragrances. No. Yes. He has, the third is on its way, but he's like a very, I think he's like an award-winning perfumier. perfumier. Yeah. So <laughs> when you're on set with him, he goes around like smelling everything. So I swear to God, like he's, it's a remarkable thing. His whole, he's got this, this olfactory situation. So he'll like, you'll look around the set for Richard and he's across the set, like smelling <laughs> a counter. And you're like, what the hell is he doing? And you realize, oh, he's working. Anyway, um... Yeah, the cast was amazing. I can't say enough about them. And, and funnily enough, when you asked that question earlier in a way that I had it inverted, um, what did I least, uh, lose the least amount of sleep over, was the fact that I knew now, unlike when we started Force Awakens, this group of people were, you know, was extraordinary together. And every scene, because for the first time, you got the group in the film together, because that didn't happen in either seven or eight. And I just knew that was going to be special and it was and I, I cannot say enough about this cast JJ Abrams thank you very much and thank you very much for the notes as well it's my pleasure and uh, we'll see what happens next time normally what happens when you when you do an interview if you slightly garble a question you kind of redo it or you edit yeah. it but given that I was had a sassy JJ Abrams uh, who was pointing out I just think it was funny it, you can see leave it all in. You can see why he's a successful director because I'm sure that that's what he's like in in meetings. You know, you got all the production heads, and somebody says, "Can we do this?" He goes, "No." You blah, 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 blah. Oh yeah, okay, sorry. Yes, you know. so, someone else said he he speaks like he's had a, got a script by Aaron Sorkin, and that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly. And I thought just before you, before yeah, you no, tell us about the film is the longest answer just measured by time. There yeah. was the John Williams answer that yes. when I asked him about John Williams because it was like. There are so many things in this film which we cannot say, yeah, which we can't talk about at length, oh. but that you can, and he just couldn't stop talking about how great yeah. John Williams is. Anyway. I thought it was lovely when he said he's like he's a real-life superhero. Yes. I thought that was a, lo- that was a lovely Anyway, uh, okay. we will get to your copious correspondence over the next few years. Um, <laughs> Star Wars Episode Nine. So firstly to say that we're not, not only we're not doing plot spoilers, I just won't do plot, because the thing is there's no, there's no need to discuss the plot other than to say the battle between good and evil continues and has to move towards some kind of resolution. Various characters are sent off around the galaxy on various quests, whilst at the centre of it, for me, the sort of centre is uh, Rey still wrestling with the idea of her identity and her destiny and the sort of long-distance relationship with Kylo Ren. So you have, and I think you do have, at the heart of it, two very, very fine performances by Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver, who I think are the emotional heart of the film. I think that if we start with all the good points, it's a very handsome-looking film. And I saw it in a really... I saw it in Dolby. I saw it in really lovely projection things. And it looks terrific. It's got spectacle and action to spare. It starts off... It pretty much hits the ground running. And, you know, immediately it's like, OK, this is where you're going to... Stuff and action and... Zim, zim, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it has a, a very good a job of bringing at least some of the story arcs to uh, a conclusion. I mean, obviously there are so many threads going on that it, you know, that you, 
and some for different reasons which, which, which don't get tied up. But there are many threads and some of which are brought to a satisfactory conclusion. And my experience of watching the film was this. I laughed at a couple of moments. I thought there were a couple of deliberate jokes yeah. in there that I thought were, were funny and the humour has always been a part of the Star Wars thing. I felt my chest surge in certain moments when iconic people or objects or circumstances. <laughs> no, because, I mean, people and yes. objects. You thought, you know, because we've, we've all been here for a long time and heaven knows I wasn't a Star Wars fan, but we've lived with this for a long time. And I enjoyed it, okay? I found it entertaining. And now the other side of that. My problems with it are this. Firstly, it the response to um, the Ryan Johnson to Last Jedi was so vitriolic that it was impossible for anybody to, you know, to pretend that that response hadn't happened. Um, you know, 2016, the Charity Commission in the UK officially ruled that Jediism is not a religion. But honestly, people behaved as if Ryan Johnson had committed some kind of heresy. There was that online petition which got you know hundreds of thousands of signatures to get them to remove Last Jedi from the official canon of the Star Wars movies. I mean, and people went nuts. Okay, now. Cards on the table. Said, well, I really like Last Me Jedi. Too. And I've seen Last Jedi a few times now. And the more I see it, the more I like it. And one of the things I like about it is that it does things that some other Star Wars, that other Star Wars movies haven't done. And it took the story in areas that I really liked. So the first thing to say about the new movie is that it essentially undoes many of the things that I liked about Last Jedi. Um, that I, the iconoclasm of Last Jedi and the and the certain plot developments which I really thought were intriguing and were interwoven into the narrative, they have either been unwritten or essentially sidestepped. What we have here is more of a sequel to The Force Awakens than a sequel to Last Jedi. I mean, as J.J. Abrams there said, that there was a kind of arc projected when they were writing Force Awakens, and this does feel like coming back to it and my very good friend Jack Howard said had this observation. He said that it almost feels like a trilogy without a second act. It almost feels like it like one leads on to three, but without two. And not entirely, but the things that I really liked about Last Jedi, and I understand some people didn't, have been, as I said, either unwritten or ignored. And personally, I find that a shame because I really like the direction it was going on. Second thing is some of the script is very, very creaky. I mean, for a film in which the central plot is essentially fairly straightforward, um, there is an awful lot of plotty exposition and an unnecessarily large amount of, uh, you know bewilderingly complicated explanation of why something has to be done in a way that that just implied that dramatically that stuff wasn't wasn't being done the third thing is that although as i said the central characters are well served and rise to the challenge and actually i think carry the emotional heart of the movie pretty effectively in the great expanse of the secondary characters, which is pretty much everybody else becomes a secondary character, they are less well-served, and it does feel to me occasionally like they're in a video game in which they have to go from this level to that level, collecting this object that leads to that object that unlocks that door that does this talismanic thing, and I never felt an emotional engagement with those things. The fourth thing, and perhaps the most troublesome one for me, is that every now and then the film which felt fundamentally very safe. It felt like a safe pair of hands. You know, it felt like we're going to get this on track. We've got a safe, the safest possible pair of hands. Occasionally, it did things that were daring and then very quickly undid them. 
So it's almost like it's very risk averse, or at least it felt very risk averse to me. And what that meant was that by the time we get towards the sort of the final stretch, it started to feel to me like a kind of almost like a greatest hits compilation, like, you know, playing the hits, bringing out the, you know, the the, the, the tunes that everyone knows, not least in the, in the John Williams scoring any, which is terrific, but does do this thing about deliberately calling back to things which are all the way through the series. So I felt like handsomely constructed and entertaining as it was, and it was entertaining. I'm not having anything you know, against that. I did enjoy watching it whilst I was watching it. But afterwards, I felt that there was an element of pandering to what the fans or what the perceived fans wanted, which, of course, is a, you're on a hiding to nothing because in the end, it, firstly, it doesn't seem to have worked anyway because everyone is as divided as they always were. And in that interview, instantly, J.J. Abrams did say, well, we didn't try and do that because you just thought you can't please any, you can't please everybody. Yeah. Um, and you can't. So my overall feeling about it is it's very safe. It's very solid. It's very entertaining. It lacks the strength of its convictions. And most problematically for me, it doesn't pick up the baton or it didn't pick up the challenge, the gauntlet that was thrown down by Last Jedi. I, it will people will continue to be divided and I would, I would echo the thing that J.J. Abrams said, which was, I'm not sure that any argument is forwarded um, by people screaming at each other and calling people calling each other it's names. The, it is the most disheartening thing of all. And I interviewed uh, Richard E. Grant this morning and we had a conversation. And he, as you know, is full of bullions. And, yeah, absolutely. And he's, a, he's an enthusiastic exactly. puppy. And the only time you sort of felt him sag is he said he's been trolled on social media, you know, by people saying, of how course. on earth can you be involved? Anyway. Can I just say but, one, one, one yeah. last thing very quickly? I interviewed Ryan Johnson on stage for Knives Out, okay? And I asked him about how he felt being in the middle of that storm when it all happened. And he said, I feel nothing but positive things about it. He said, it was the best experience of my life. He said, I absolutely loved it. I got to make a Star Wars movie. And yeah, people had loads and loads of opinions and some of them were very hostile and some of them were very positive. And he said, I have nothing bad to say about it at all. And I feel like going, that, people, is how you play this yes, game. exactly. Uh, I, I mean, essentially, I'm saying the same thing as you, which okay. is I think it's very entertaining. Uh, uh, I think I would give it, I'd, I'd notch it up a bit, only because I think the greatest hits bit that you talk about yeah. is exactly what most people will want. It's a bit like you, it's your, it's like your we favourite band. Yeah. Say this, well, this is kind it's of exactly like what we've been talking about. Last ever gig, Elton John's last ever gig, yeah. Eagles' last ever gig. What do you want? Do you want them to play new experimental yeah. stuff? No. no. Play the hits. So I think I think the greatest hits bit is probably yeah. what they want. I mean, the only question I'd throw back, and then we could do some correspondence yeah. on the side of the news. Wasn't it always inevitable that there'd be lots of exposition because it's the last one, and so everything has to be nailed down? Um, I think everything isn't nailed down, and I think there is that when you consider how much exposition there is, there's it's it still leaves whole things that I, I mean I felt that that you could have done with less talking and more doing less less telling and more showing so today is Chris Rea day so we should just say everyone who's driving home for Christmas or just driving trying to get home Christmas. or trying to get a train as clearly outlined there in the travel news yeah. and you're struggling well uh, hopefully we're providing you with a little bit of entertainment and can I just say for anybody who's been struggling with train travel 
I feel your pain. Indeed you do. So, uh, Star Wars correspondence, TV movie of the week, Cats, all before five o'clock. TV movie of the week, first of all, Alan. So, the choice TV is... TV movie of the fortnight, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. Uh, well, Pad- not kind of, it is. Paddington 2, Sound of Music, Behind the Candelabra, Moana, Inside Out, Zootopia, Scrooge, 1951, Skyfall and Home Alone is not a bad list. No, it's not. Alan McGuan, Surely Skyfall is Home Alone. Train Traveller. <laughs> I'm going for yeah. Moana. There's a question about whether Skyfall is Home Alone or Straw Dogs. It has nothing to do with Christmas, but the animation is beautiful. Chad Williams, quality throughout this list. Shout out to the top production team for listing the transmission time for Back to the Future as, and I quote, 25 to Queen. <laughs> Mark may pick, because it's important to know when... <laughs> when the Queen's speeches. Yes, you know, because some people think it's on in the morning. Yeah. Mark may pick Elf, whilst in our house it will be the sound of Moo Moo, as my two-year-old daughter pronounces it. Very good. Uh, Tom Shanley, The Snowman, The Boy Kneeling, but I think it's one of the most heartbreaking endings. Uh, Jack says Paddington 2 is one of the greatest films of the decade, cinematic perfection. Uh, Nicky Rowbottom, what a list, not a film in there I wouldn't watch, and Billy Elliot is my personal favourite. Uh, Mark Slade, given the veritable plethora of good films on the list, I think Mark might end up choosing two TV movies of the week, but as long as one of those is Paddington 2, uh, a sequel that surpassed the superb original and with Hugh Grant never better, I'll be happy. And Marmalade sandwiches all round. What's our TV movie of the fortnight? Well, let's go for two in that case. Let's go for Paddington 2, which is uh, 20 past seven in the evening on Boxing Day on BBC One. I imagine many people will be tuning into that. Um, Sanjeev is in that, of course, sir. Uh, Bless him. Yes, good. I was yes. just waiting for you to be sure that. And I'm also going to go for Behind the Candelabra, uh, 25 to midnight on Saturday on BBC Two. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. From our list, Office Christmas Party, Four Christmases, about which Mark said <clears> it spends <throat> its time going families, horrible families, horrible families, horrible families, horrible families, horrible families, horrible. And then at the end, it goes, you know what? We love family. <laughs> uh <laughs> okay, so there's um, what? What have we got? Um, John says, "Are you trolling us? The Holiday is a fantastic Christmas film." No, it's not. Yes, it's a rom com. Yes, it's a bit cheesy, but it's a feel good film, which is what Christmas films are all about. Uh, Alison Ray Jones, what? Why is Holiday on the list? It's my go to Christmas movie, perfect for present wrapping, festive fare. Uh, Katie says, The Holiday, hands down, I hate it because it te- contains four actors I love in something so horrible. <laughs> I can't them. watch it. Yeah. When Jude Law appeared on screen in a duck egg blue cashmere <laughs> jumper, I wanted to yell birdsong off at the screen. <laughs> it's being vomited on by Christmas. No, thank you. Moira Phillip, The Holiday, it's a chick flick. Men I love the level of annoyance like in that email. Leave it for us girls. I don't recall New Year's Eve being that bad either. Um <laughs> And Martin says, The Holiday, definitely. I watched it the other day after years of friends telling me how good it was. Needless to say, they'll be off the Christmas card list. I knew it was awful as soon as Kate Winslet started moaning about her tiny house, which is actually a five-bedroom <laughs> mansion in the snow-covered countryside. It's vile. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, so I am going to go for Four Christmases, which I do think is is really, really terrible. But um, you didn't read my quote from... This is the, what I said about Hollywood. Came out. When people talk about video nasties... You're quoting the, yourself now. Yeah, well, I'm just reading because Simon Paul has gone to the trouble of... Shall I quote you then? Yes. When people talk about video nasties, they said the main problem with these films is that they make people into bad, violent people. No, they don't. Movies like The Holiday make <laughs> people into bad, violent people because they're so putrefyingly poor that you sit there feeling your life force ebbing away into your seat. And that's when evil thoughts of destruction start to seep in. It really is grotesque. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just better and ethically more pure for me to quote you. Yeah, that's fine. 
Ethical purity? Yes. Is, is that, that it? Is that still around? It's a big thing in 2020. Is it? Okay, great. So before Kat, some yes. thoughts on uh, The Rise of Skywalker. Yes. Ewan, age 21 and three quarters. I have just come out of a midnight screening of the new Star Wars and wanted to try and counteract some of the negativity I feel this film may receive in coming weeks. Isn't that, said, could you say, isn't that amazing that people are actually preempting the I backlash? Know. I sat behind a group of the worst kind of fans who had obviously made up their mind about the film before it even started and scoffed throughout. I, for one, found it thoroughly entertaining. The Last Jedi, which is, which is something you and I both exactly. Felt. The Last Jedi was probably better, but it was a satisfying conclusion to the trilogy. J.J. Abrams has a good sense of who the main three protagonists are and their relationships with each other. I was engaged for the full two and a half hours, and although there are a few nitpicks, nitpicks, it all worked out emotionally. I urge all Star Wars fans to judge this film on its own merit. You might just enjoy yourself. Um, John Williams, but obviously not that one. I feel for J.J. Abrams and the producers of Star Wars. Trying to please Star Wars fans is a near impossible task under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Trying to bring a satisfying resolution to a series of films, 42 years and eight films in the making, and give an appropriate touching final appearance to some... uh, But still entertain all cinema goers. That's a feat of magic which even Yoda would struggle with. The return of J.J. in the director's chair meant that this was an experience far closer to that of The Force Awakens. It definitely was yes, not is. reinventing the wheel, rather again leaving heavily on previous films from the original trilogy. It was funny, but not in an overbearing way. There was some MacGuffin chasing, more than a few nods to the fanboys and all at a breakneck speed. Classic Abrams, really. Overall, it worked. Yes, there were some clanging bad movie logic plot holes in places. The constantly accelerating pace was occasionally overwhelming and it felt as if some of the characters were given more prominence so as to tie in with their TV series. I'm sure there will be a laundry list of other errors and slights appearing on Reddit right now. Mm -hmm. But for me, this was an entertaining spectacular that satisfied me as a lifelong fan of Star Wars and at a couple of points hit me right in the feels. All the heroes and villains had them... Right in the feels? Right in the feels, yes. No, no, no. All the heroes and villains had their moment in the sun, and while it didn't tie off everything with a neat bow, in doing so it dodged ending fatigue. I'm looking at you, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Return of the King. But I thought The Last Jedi had more to like than loathe, so what do you know? Best wishes to you both. Interesting, you know, that The the Last Jedi uh, supporters are are, are coming out. A couple more and then we'll do cats. Uh, Oliver Teasdale. It's precisely 3.08am. I typed this having just returned from the midnight showing. I'll keep it simple as you'll be inundated with correspondence. Correct. Firstly, I like The Last Jedi and I think that the controversial decisions made in that film benefited this film by having our characters start in different positions. What that film was missing, however, was the sense of adventure, discovery and revelation. This film brought all that and more. It had the enormous task of sticking the landing for the most popular story ever told in cinema spanning 42 years. It truly did what J.J set out to do unite the trilogies and fandom in this 21 year old original trilogy loyalists opinion i believe it accomplished it thank you star wars and indeed george lucas for taking me on a whirlwind adventure to a galaxy that doesn't feel so far far away and just to um keep everyone acknowledged it's one of those emails that makes my heart sink even to read it out okay but you know Let's hear from everybody. Yes. As someone actually once said on this network whilst introducing a phone in, give us a call no matter how vile your opinions. <laughs> Who said that? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Five Live Hardcore will know. <laughs> so, 
this is Gordon Bradford. As a lifelong Star Wars fan who has invested in and defended the new, the new movies, even eight, I take no pleasure in reporting that Rise of Skywalker is absolute and unadulterated garbage. Eight hours have now passed since I saw it and I have got more angry with each passing second. I mean really. Even putting to one side the mythology, history, nostalgia, characters and all the varying degrees of fandom, it doesn't even make any sense in the trilogy of films within which it sits, much less the wider canon. I can't tell if J.J. Abrams either didn't watch episode 8 obviously not, or that he did and he hated it that much that he decided to completely ignore it. Either way, I've got better results when you play that game of writing a single word on a piece of paper, folding it up and passing it to someone else to write another unrelated word and then reading all the nonsense out at the end. It's the only Star Wars movie I've ever seen where people walked out before the end and at the end we sat in the awkward hushed silence of stunned disbelief. I could go on in I could go into a long diatribe, could you, about everything that is wrong with this film, but I don't want to provide any spoilers for your listeners. If I have had to sit through this fetid sludge of a movie, then quite frankly, they can as well. I mean how well, but how can anyone describe you, you might not like it, no, but I is know. it fetid sludge? No, no it no. manifests. Let, let us let us just say, however, in the in the interest of hands across across the waters, that um that I agree with the idea that it 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 does largely ignore many things okay. of The Last Jedi. And I think that is a legitimate point. I think it's a shame that that legitimate point is made within a tirade about how it's the you know despicably terrible. But I do. But I think that that is a that is a yeah, legitimate yeah, no, point, fine. and um, and I and I'm surprised that there were people walking out because the, certainly the screening I was in, although it was a you know it was a it was a press screening, it was a preview screening, um, th- that wasn't that wasn't the response in the room. Uh, the response in the room was you know that was pretty good. Yeah, it was you know, and then we had, we all then sat around afterwards and had a discussion about. You know what we thought worked and what we didn't. As you know, what my reservations are. But anyway, but thank you for the for the email and thank you for sending it in. Uh, it's twelve minutes to five o'clock, which means it's cats time. So I, I said originally, I saw cats this morning. So I saw it later than everybody else. I wasn't able to go to the press screening, and there Paid was money. There was one press screening um, uh, because it was, as we know, the stories that, that, that Tom Hooper was working on it until very very late in the day. So I also haven't seen the stage musical. So th- this is, I think, correct. So screen adaptation of the hit stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which itself was adapted from T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which I haven't read. Never saw the stage show. I, the only tune I know from the musical is Memories, because that was a there was a hit single of that. As far as I understand, the stage show began as a song cycle with uh, Webber putting Andrew Lloyd Webber putting uh, music to Elliot's putting music to Elliot's words. Then Trevor Nunn and Gillian Lynn, the choreographer, were brought on board to turn it into a musical. And the, I looked up the synopsis of the musical on Wiki, which says the story of a tribe of cats called the Jellicles and the night they make the Jellicle choice, deciding which cat will ascend to the heavyside layer and come back to a new life. Uh, fourth longest running show on Broadway, sixth longest in the West End. And Tom Hooper's previous credits obviously include Les Miserables and his orchestra, which again, he, he successfully transferred from the stage to the stage show to the film after it had been a fantastically, still, it still is, isn't it? A fantastically long running stage show. For Cats, he's enlisted Lee Hall, whose credits include Billy Elliot and Rocket Man, rounded up an all star cast, including Judy Dench, Idris Elba, Taylor Swift, J- uh, Jennifer Hudson, Ian McKellen, Rebel Wilson, James Corden, and, and, much, much more. The uh, format of the film is that it uses live action uh, performances to whom, uh, through the miracle of CG, 
a sort of a a, a sheen of cat-like fur and uh, slightly changed appearances is applied. The reviews for cats were embargoed until yesterday, which is often a bad sign. And when the reviews came out, it was evident that the embargo had had anticipated the reviews. It is one of the worst reviewed films I've seen recently. Variety says one of those once in a blue moon embarrassments that mars the resumes of great actors and trips up the careers of promising newcomers. The Guardian called it a dreadful hairball of woe. Rolling Stone called it the worst movie, not only of 2019, but probably the decade. And Tim Roby gave it zero stars in The Telegraph. So it's the first time they've done no stars. So I went in knowing that that was the critical reaction and not having seen it and not having... Okay, so I so I really... I, I want to find the stuff... That's good because I know you can't accuse the critics of piling in on top of each other because all the reviews came out at the same time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that somebody led the charge and suddenly because all the reviews were embargoed. So first thing to say is that although they don't tickle my ear at all, the songs are clearly timeless. This has a new song, also Beautiful Ghost by Lloyd Webber and Taylor Swift. Um, The songs have worked on stage for audiences for a huge amount of time. So although they're not for me, they don't work for me. I, I don't hear the the joy in them. They are clearly indestructible songs. There were a couple of moments in the film in which it kind of almost worked. Uh, Ian McKellen as the theatrical cat and Judy Dench uh, as the sort of the over overlord cat, the person who gets to make the, the jellical choice. There's a couple of moments that their performances worked and they worked because of things that they did physically, not that was done with CG, that they did, you know, themselves in their performances. I mean, Ian McKellen's theatrical cat, he's playing some sort of old theatrical lovey and you know, it's, that's not a million miles away from what he might do anyway. For the most part, however, I was just trying to adjust to the way it looked. The trailer, as everyone remembers, looked horrifying. And I do think the designs have been softened since then. I know there have been reports in the paper about them going back and sort of rethinking the way it looked after that response to the trailer. The main problem with the film, however, is it's like The Lion King, OK? The Lion King makes sense as a cartoon animation, the Lion King on stage makes sense as performers, mime artists wearing things that signify animals, or you know, or Warhorse makes sense on stage with a puppet horse. Lion King doesn't make sense when you do a photorealist version of it, which just makes you think, well, why are you doing this? Because it's so weird and so out. It it, it just doesn't make any sense with the narrative. Now, looking at the stage show images, I can see that when they did it on stage, there was performers in costumes, you know, so it's but they're but they're performers in costumes rather than trying to replicate something that's got a kind of weird organic reality. The CG in this covers the the performers in a weird layer of CG fur and hair. And what it does is it actually creates completely the opposite effect of what I think it's intended to do. I think they looked at it and thought, you know, the best costume would be a digital costume. But actually what the digital costume does is it, rather than looking in any way real, it looks completely unreal and completely bafflingly distracting. So you never settle to looking at performers with costumes. You just spend your whole time looking at them thinking, I cannot figure out what that CG is trying to do. It's creating this weird hybrid. It's not even uncanny valley. It's like awkward corner or bewildering basement. It's so bizarre. And we know from the reports that Hooper himself said he was fiddling with shots right up until the very last moment. It really is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. No amount of changing individual shots in Cats 
would solve the problem because the problem is that the whole principle of the look is so misguided that you can't get to a happy conclusion from where you are. It's like the you know the REM thing. You can't get there from here. Um, I know that there was, you know, because it was it, it qualified for, 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 for I think, for, for some awards, for Golden Globes. And, and the, you know, obviously, it, it's only been finished fairly recently. I kind of wish that I'd seen it without, in an unfinished version without the CG, because I think it would have worked better for me if I'd just seen people in leotards than in this bizarre, um, you know, CG costuming. The other thing is, firstly, OK, um, the... The editing is all over the place. Some of the choreography is fine, obviously, because it's, you know, well choreographed show, but you can't really see it. There's a tap dancing number in which it it just looks like somebody collapsed onto the editing machine and hit random cut. Uh, the scale is completely weird. The size of the characters seems to change size and shape from, you know, one shot to the next. Sometimes they look like monkeys. Sometimes they look like mice. Crucially, they never, never, never look like cats and weirdly enough for something which is called cats it's the least feline thing i have ever seen i didn't laugh i didn't cry even during memory and i'm easy to make cry and i was quite often bored although it is quite short so i think that although although i th you know in the middle of kind of people now there's almost like a competition of who can say the the, the meanest thing about it i think it's misconceived from the outset the idea of trying to, to, to do those characters with the weird CG physical hybrid is a complete mistake. And it doesn't matter how much you fiddle with the shots, it's a complete mistake. Secondly, it doesn't do its cast any favours. And many of them are, you know, putting the hours in, but, but it's just, it doesn't do them any favours. Thirdly, I, I think we have to start accepting at this point that Hooper actually isn't that good of a director or at least he's not good enough to pull off something so audacious. In order to have pulled this off, you'd have to be Cronenberg. You'd have to be Lynch. You'd have to be, you'd have to be somebody who was like really far out there to make it work. And I think, I think he's just kind of not. I think he's just kind of quite average. The reviews have been terrible, but hey, I'm also conscious of the fact that so were the reviews for Greatest Showman and Last Christmas, and I'm aware of the fact that I was one of the people who gave Greatest Showman a terrible review, and I must accept that if you love the musical and if you love the songs, then it's possible that you, you know, I think the film may well take money or take enough money to wash its face, no pun intended, incidentally. But the honest truth of it is this. The problem with the film is that it shouldn't exist in the form that it does. And there's no single thing that would have solved it. It's so m misconceived at the beginning that everything else is just, it's like moving the litter around in the litter tray. You, it's not gonna solve the issue that you're gonna have to just clean the litter tray. Okay, to be, to be continued. Okay. Thank, and the most measured conversation about cats probably anyone has had anywhere oh thank you before we finish it's our last show before christmas yes we need to yeah. bring you this moment last week we finished on a little bit of a downer uh, because we were talking about whether indeed everything will be all right in the end yes okay this week i spoke to tom hanks the full interview will happen in february this happened you're a timely guest on our program tom always but at the end of last week's program mark who's our reviewer who did the interview with you for uh, for toy story 
uh, he he always says everything is going to be all right in the end, and if it isn't all right, then it's not the end. Okay. Ah, so that's what that's he, beautiful. Yes, but last week he sounded uncertain. Uh-oh. He wasn't quite sure. Now, you uh, listeners to this program know and associate you with being the voice of reassurance okay. and optimism. Mm-hmm. So, and this is specifically to Mark uh, and to people who are going, what, an, what a strange nihilistic downturn you had at the end of last week's program. Um, to people who, who are not sure whether it's going to be all right in the end, what would, what would you say? Either, as, either Mr. Rogers or all right. Mr. Hanks. Here you go. Are you still cheery? You're ready for this? Mm-hmm. Four words. This too shall pass. You having a rotten day? You having a hopeless day? This too shall pass. You having a great day? You feel on top of the world? This too shall pass. <laughs> it's, it evens out. Life is a big bell curve. No matter how dark, no matter how wonderful, this too shall pass. Tom Hanks, always a pleasure. Thank you very pleasure. much. Pleasure. Nice talking to you. Wow. I like what that is. It's, it's, it's never the, what is it? It's never the end. Uh, everything will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. It's not the end. That's beautiful. Where did he come up with that? He probably read it somewhere. Well, uh, you should write it down. I like that. Lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> it's Christmas. So, you know, that was, I just seemed like a perfect counterpoint. That's, no, that's lovely. That's like, I, I, honestly... Just the sound of Tom Hanks's voice. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Five Live. Mark, what is your film of the week? Well, Little Women, which is out on Boxing Day. So film of next week. Film of this week? No, Little Women. It's I know, but film of this week. Oh, well, Star Wars over okay. cats. Uh, we'll be back with our best of 2019 special at 8 o'clock on, pe- on Christmas Day. You can hear the highlights and lowlights of 2019. Robbie and Edith will be here on January the 3rd with Greta Gerwig from the aforementioned movie. We're going to be back on January the 10th with Sam Mendes and the Safdie brothers. How about that? Right, DVD of the week? Yes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Would you enjoy that show? I did. It was. I think it went quite well, don't you think? I think it was sparkly. Yeah, sparkly. Are you feel, feeling slightly more festive? I'm feeling much more festive. In a couple, a couple of hours in your company is enough to put a spring in anyone's step. I'm going... Uh, I'm hoping it's going to be a white one this year. Are you? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Which reminds me, how do you find Will Smith in the snow? Follow the fresh prince. <laughs> I'm still... Sorry, do it again. Go on, just do it again. Just do it once more, just so I can just enjoy it. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? I don't know. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? Follow the Fresh Prince. Follow the Fresh Prince. I've still not decided what I'm going to get the uh, Famalam for Crimbo this year. I was up late last night on eBay, and I couldn't believe what I saw. Here we go. Rudolph and Blitzen were for sale, but there were no bids. Do you know why? Oh, hang on. (sighs) No. That's because they were too dear. What I'm... What? What am I asking for? What do, you call a, what do you call a deer with no eyes? No idea. What do you call a deer with no eyes and no legs? Still no idea. What am I asking for from the good lady ceramicist I indoors this know. year? I, I don't you know and I kind of don't care. Well, the past few Christmases I've been collecting all kinds of Phil Collins memorabilia. Rare foreign pressings of No Jacket Required, a signed limited edition album artwork of But Seriously, a platinum presentation disc of Two Hearts, that sort of thing, but not this year. I've, I'm done with all that. 
Is, Pe- is there a horrible pun coming at the people end? People said I'd never get over my obsession with Phil Collins, but take a look at me now. Is that it? Is that with all of that a build up <laughs> to that, that. Joke, that whole that literally that whole three paragraphs was all just <laughs> it's, what? I said it's. I didn't oh, say no. what you think. I just said, although I know that that's what it sounded well, like. We I can just said I didn't say that. Well, Christmas does make me extremely emotional. Does it you? I got really teary this morning at the petrol station. I don't know why. I just started filling up. <laughs> it's like it's, just, it's like it's, it's Christmas dinner with it's crackers. It's like it hurts. Anyway, uh, that's enough of that. So let's hear what the uh, the church is suggesting for last-minute gifts for their nearest and dearest. These are all DVDs of the week of the year. Oh, I see. Fine. Daniel Bell, Bohemian Rhapsody, It's Christmas, and so you have to watch Queen on Christmas it's Day. Christmas. Oh, very good. And you can put this Queen on in the morning. Hey. Christopher Daly, there's some great films on the list, but my choice is Toy Story 4. And we've just heard from Tom. Isn't that nice? Took my four-year-old to see it on his first cinema trip, and he absolutely loved it. It was just pure, beautiful magic. Uh, seeing his reaction as the story unfolded on screen. E.E. E. Wainwright, Booksmart, Fighting With My Family, Farmageddon, Wild Rose and John Wick 3. Carl Brown, Avengers Endgame, surely highest grossing movie of all time, surely deserves a mention. Paul Rogers, Bad Times at the El Royale, uh, Shoplifters, Upgrade, blah, 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 blah. great long list. And Nina Gray says, Us in Fabric and pre-ordering Pain and Glory, not out till January. What are... Uh, DVDs of the week of the year. You know, I'm going to go for Booksmart, and you know why? Because not enough people went to see it. No. I think that's what I'm... So I'm going to go for that. Is that OK? Nope. No. Oh, all right, well, what are we going to go for, then? Pick something else. Oh, it's fine. You can choose. You can choose. Oh, all right, pick something else. All right, then I'm going to go for the DVD Blu-ray reissue of Exorcist 3 with the recut Legion on it. Now you're talking. Now I'm talking. Now that's what I call... Gather round, family. We've got a Christmas special edition for you. <laughs> Anyway, Mark, thank What are you, you going to choose? Do you choose one of those? Okay. I would say without... It, well, I'm going to go f- just because I enjoyed it so much and because it was good. For, I think Fighting With My Family equal with Wild Rose. Okay. They're not my films of the year, but from this list. Okay, those are very good. Shall I sing you my... The, no. The, no, no, I'll be quick. The Christmas song that I learnt from the kids many years ago, and yet which I have to sing every year because it made me laugh so much when they came back from school having learned it. Okay. Do you know this one? I don't know what it is. It goes. You might have to cut this. But I was, this, I was taught this by my children, okay? Let's, lo- let's it, lose the music because it will detract from the musicality and genius of Mark's family song. Okay. Well, it's not my family song. My kids came back from school when they were young, having been taught this song at school, yes. okay? It goes... Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, I weed behind the Christmas tree. I weed up high, I weed down low, I weed my name into the snow. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, I weed behind the Christmas tree. (laughs) BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts. Available now on BBC Sounds. 
Hello everyone, it's Ellis and John here and we are very excited to introduce a new podcast and it's called How Do You Cope with Ellis and John. We're going to be talking to a range of guests about the challenges and hurdles and setbacks that they might have faced in their own lives while asking the question, how do you cope? You hear about grief being like glitter. You hoover it and you tidy it up. You just keep finding little bits. You never quite get rid of it completely. Eventually I went to see a psychiatrist and he said, right, I'm signing you off for three months. You're having the mental health equivalent of a heart attack. How do you cope with Ellis and John on BBC Sounds?